Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All right. Thanks for joining me, you guys. Um, this is the Do Big Things podcast. My name is Adam. I'm your host. And uh, this is being released on June 30th, the episode you've all been waiting for. This is my man, Jason Howell, and he just recently recently returned from Mount Everest. And he summited May 21st, 2022. He stood atop Mount Everest. May make this intro short because it's a long episode, um, but trust me, it is definitely worth listening to all of it, and it gets better as it goes. Um, I was at the edge of my seat throughout the whole interview, and as it went, it, to me, it just got better and better. So, uh, great interview, fantastic! You guys are gonna love it. I'm super excited about it. So, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for checking it out. Here you go, my man, Mr. Jason Howell. Let's get into it, dude. Buckle up. Let's get after it and start this ride. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know I talked to you on the phone a couple weeks ago, and you said that uh, you were still trying to process everything that happened and and sort of come to terms with it and find your way back into society. And I can appreciate that. Um, it, It took some time to think this thing over. So it sounds like quite the adventure. It sounds like we've got a good story ahead of us. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, uh, a big mountain expedition like that, you know, you know, it's six weeks, you know, we spent on the mountain. So definitely, um, a lot of experiences. It's a big thing, you know, um, you're up there for a long time, see a lot of things, do a lot of things. So definitely, you know, after finishing something like that and getting home, yeah, it's, it's a lot to process for sure. I mean, I know you can relate, uh, cause I've kind of went through, uh, some of the similar things, you know, just even after an event, after an ultra, you know, you have this, this goal, this objective that you're, you're chasing and you're, you're striving for in preparation, you know, for so long and then you get it done and it's almost like, you know, you, you kind of, now what, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it, it takes a long time. Yeah. You know, I've noticed that with myself anyway, after, after races or bigger events, like, it took me a good few weeks. Um, like say after, after Moab, I think it was nearly a month when finally Michelle and I were having a conversation. I'm like, Hey, we ran 240 miles. Like that was kind of cool, you know, <laughs> but it took me that long, you know, cause you're so focused on the the here and the now my nutrition, my hydration, the, the time or the finish, whatever. Like it takes a while for you to process and step back and look at big picture objectively. Like, wow okay, I just went through all of this, you know, and you kind of start appreciating it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Man, what I appreciate you about you is um, you're a green beret and you've done a lot of big things in your life. You've done a lot of badass stuff and you just come across as really humble and very little ego. Is that something you have to consciously work on or does that come natural for you? 
it's probably an embarrassing question, but yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, just like I, I, I told you before, you know, when we did the the first episode, you know, this this for me is is out of my my comfort zone, um, and I. I don't know. I, I don't know how or, or why. Maybe it's just the kind of the way I was raised, but I've never enjoyed, I don't enjoy talking about myself at all, um, especially with what I do uh, and the, the people I surround myself with. You know, I, I, all of my, you know, like close friends, you know, and my family, everybody I surround myself with, I surround myself with these people for a purpose and I look up to all of them. And so for me, you know, I'm, I look up to them. There's no reason for me to talk about myself. Like I, I want to talk about them. You know, I, I, I learn and I listen and I, and I follow them. And so for me, I just, I don't, yeah, I don't really see any reason to talk about myself, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. As we're yeah. about to jump into a, you know, 60 to 90 minute podcast about you. <laughs> no, I mean, I, know, I, yeah, I get yeah. it. I get it. It makes sense. And I appreciate that answer, but let's go back, man. Like how, what was the inception of the Mount Everest project? Like, how did it start? How did you decide on Everest rather than another peak or another big project? Um, what was, what was the seed that ended up uh, blossoming into this big thing? Yeah, I guess so. You know, you know, I mentioned before, uh, Michelle and I, we did the trek to Everspace Camp back in 2018, and uh, so back then, getting up into the Kumbu, getting into the Himalaya, and you know, especially seeing Everest and all these just beautiful, big, incredible mountains, um, that that really kind of set a hook in me. You know, just growing up here in Colorado, I have just always found my happiness and my passion from being in and moving through through the mountain so it kind of started then but then it really I guess took hold uh at you know at Moab 240 uh 2020 uh my first attempt and one of the the athletes one of the runners I logged quite a few miles with uh, his name is Zach uh you know we logged miles through the race and talked and hung out and then um after after the race he kind of hit me up and we started chatting uh he you know does some some mountaineering and ski mountaineering and, and stuff on his own uh and then he'd gone through some courses and he had talked about wanting to put something together to climb Everest and I'm like you know and he he invited me on and then from there I kind of began the the planning process you know this is a, a year and a half ago uh, or actually a year and a half uh before before I left so a while out and I just kind of looked at it you know in, in life like you always have the the by the book uh way to do things to approach things right so if you want to get into a hundred miler you know you start out maybe your first race is a 5k and then you work yourself up maybe do a half marathon a marathon 50k you know so on and so forth and, and maybe you know over the course of you know, 12 to 24 months, maybe longer, you know, you, you attempt your first hundred mile race, you know, well, with big mountain climbing, it's, it's no different. And especially Everest, you know, cause like you can, you can research, read, watch documentaries, you know, listen to professional uh, guides, mountaineers, people with a lot of experience 
And it's pretty adamant. Like you absolutely have to have a technical background in uh, mountaineering, mountain climbing. Uh, but you also have to, by the book, work up in this progression of climbing, climbing mountains and climbing peaks, working your way to high altitude, you know. So like starting uh, Mount Kilimanjaro, you know, for instance, that summit is 19,700 feet. Cool. Maybe people check that off. And then they go to Denali or Aconcagua and they do all of these mountains working up in preparation for Everest. Not to mention um, what's very common and, and very highly recommended is to do other uh, 8,000 meter peaks uh, before Everest, just getting up to that extreme high altitude. So you have that experience. So you know how your body's going to respond. Can you adapt? Can you even move and function that high, but bring in uh, and have this, uh, this skill set and this, um, this knowledge before attempting this mountain. But for me and, you know, my lifestyle, my job with what I do, you know, I, I've kind of learned over the years, like life isn't always perfect. Like sometimes you're going to get presented an opportunity. And if it's something you want, something you're passionate about, you have to get after it and, and you have to figure out a way to make it work. And mind you, you know, being smart, putting in the training, putting in the work, doing the research, you know, being dedicated and intelligent with what you're doing. But I mean, that's life, man. Like I, I've had a lot of things that I've, I, I, I hate to say accomplished, but I have gone through or gotten done um, just simply because the opportunity presented, it my, uh, presented itself and I knew it was something I was passionate about and I just went after it and I just, you know, you just put your cards on the table like, hey, I don't know if I'm going to make this work, but we're going to give it a go and see what happens. And that's kind of, you know, it's kind of how Everest ended up working out. Uh, just this opportunity presented itself and then I had 18 months to wrap my head around and figure out how I'm going to you know, get with an organization, how I'm going to make this work with my, with my job. How am I going to get this thing funded? How am I going to prepare myself? And I just, I just went deep into it, man. Um, you know, once I had the conversation with Michelle and, you know, I knew she supported it, like bless her heart. She's incredible. Um, once she like fully gave me the green light, it's okay. We're, we're going to make this happen and going to give it a shot. Mm. Mm hmm. So what did that 18 months look like leading up to this? I mean, was it I mean, I just imagine with a project like this, you would have to be like so singularly focused on this one thing. But there's a lot of pieces to to this big puzzle. There's training, diet, nutrition, like you said, the, the funding like. Um, but yeah, like how, how did you map out that 18 months? Yeah, so initially, you know, we really got heavy into the planning in, I guess it was January of 21. And once we got into that, got going, you know, fortunately, again, with my job as a mountaineering instructor, you know, I'm, I'm constantly in the mountains anyway. So, you know, I'm moving, it's keeping me fit, I'm working on my uh, on my technical proficiency. And so that, that works hand in hand, both during the summer and the winter. And then, um, you know, pursuing ultras, you know, that, that was a great source of, of training and fitness for me. And, you know, living here in Colorado, 
you know, there's better, there's no better fitness than running 14ers. And, right. and that's just, that's what I enjoy doing anyway. I love getting up to higher elevation, get above tree line, moving through the mountains, big day, big days in the mountains. Uh, so I just kind of really kept doing what I do, uh, what I would be doing anyway uh, for training, but I, I definitely ramped it up. And then also, you know, uh, I, I went back to Moab uh, for a second attempt after my, my initial DNF. And so that train up uh, was much bigger and much more focused than my first Moab train up. So now in the back of my mind, you know, all year long, I've got, okay, Moab 240, that's coming in October. Like I'm going to get, I got to get after it. There's, there's absolutely no way I cannot finish, cannot not finish this race this year. I have to execute. And then in the back of my mind is like, okay, that's October. I know in the spring, I'm going to be going on, on expedition to -hmm. attempt this climb. So it gave me a lot of, uh, a lot of fuel and just a lot of mental focus and drive to, to make the most out of every day that I could. Um, the funding, yeah, as, as I'm sure you can imagine, not that that's big, man. Uh, that was definitely, uh, you know, a big hurdle for me, um, and, and trying to figure that out. Uh, I was so fortunate, uh, to get in contact with Greenbury racing after Moab and to be brought on to their organization. Uh, and, and they helped support me obvious for this, obviously, you know, for this climb supported in a huge way and you know i i think i'm pretty confident that i would have found a way to make it work but i'll tell you what man if it wasn't for all of the people and i'm talking like individuals not not big businesses and companies i'm talking individuals that paid out of their pocket to donate um, to green beret racing and directly to me to give me this opportunity to try to climb uh, Everest. I mean, it, it was unbelievable, man. It, it really takes me back. Like it, if that hadn't happened, I don't, I don't know how I would have made it work, you know, uh, at this point. So that, yeah, there, there was a lot. And then, you know, not to mention I am active duty. So it's like, you know, it's funny. Cause I, there were 15, uh, 15 of us total on this expedition. And and most people, you know, oh, they got time off or they were in between jobs or different things like, well, you know, I don't have that luxury. And so the fact that my my unit in, in the army granted me uh, two months of leave vacation to go attempt this thing. And then on top of that, they know what I'm attempting to do because I got phone calls and, and I had people ask me like, hey, uh, are you just trekking up to like base camp or, or what are you doing? I'm like nah dude uh i'm gonna try to climb it like oh okay so it it, you know as you can imagine it it turned into a pretty real thing um it was a lot of risk that they took um to allow me to uh to to attempt uh that mountain and you know there there have been other individuals in the past uh who have been active duty service members trying to do you know things similar to this and, and they get denied so just the fact that i was allowed to go attempt this uh is pretty incredible and i couldn't be more more fortunate Mm. uh, more thankful for that and then you know with those six weeks on the mountain you know i bring that experience back now um to share with with our students and people that we put through the course and 
and that was really big for me. I, for me, I, you know, you never want to teach or instruct um, any bit of information strictly out of a book, right? Or like a PowerPoint presentation, like you have to have real life, real world experience. Yeah. So if I'm giving a class on how to treat hypothermia or frostbite, or, you know, the effects of high altitude, like now I can speak from, from experience. And I, th I think, you know, in my profession, uh, especially that, that holds a lot of weight. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to, to future classes and, and being able to, you know, hopefully give, give our students a little bit more training and real world experience. Yeah. Well, you've got the experience now, it sounds like. Um, if you don't mind, tell us about your job. Tell us what it looks like on the day to day. Yeah. So um, I'm here. I'm based out of Fort Carson, uh, on 10th Special Forces Group, and I'm a military mountaineering instructor at the Special Operations Mountain Warfare Training Center. So uh, we run our schoolhouse uh, for all of SOF, so all of Special Operations Forces. So it could be Green Berets, Rangers, SEALs, um, but only SOF. Uh, and they come through our schoolhouse and we run two summer courses and one winter course each year. And we take these special operations soldiers and we get them on the rock during the summer. We teach them how to rock climb, you know, and that starts out pretty basic, you know, setting up top ropes. Then we'll work into sport climbing, you know, then we'll let them lead sport climbs so they can clip bolts and they're, you know, pretty safe. And then we get into traditional gear placements and, and we work, we stair step our way through this process, um, getting into to very technical, um, technical routes, technical climbing, multi-pitch climbing. Uh, we work a lot of technical rope systems, rescues, loads, stuff like that. And then we get them into the Alpine and, you know, we summit 14ers. Uh, during these courses via technical routes, you know, but obviously um, being military, it's not just a, it's just, not, it's not just a casual day out of the crag. Uh, our students, you know, once they are technically proficient and they're safe on the rock and in the mountains, they'll throw on an 80 pound pack with all of their gear, their weapons, their full loadout. So each person has, you know, could be upwards of, a hundred pounds that they're carrying total weight. And now they're leading five, eight pitches. They're moving through multi-pitch rock routes. They're summiting exposed ridgelines at 14,000 feet. And so they're doing all the things that, you know, we kind of do, uh, you know, as, you know, weekend hobbies for fun, but they're doing this with weight on their back. And then on top of that, they have to think about all the tactical considerations and the right. military training and focus. Right. And then in the winter, we, we do the same thing, man. It's, you know, it's a fire hose and our students are so incredibly intelligent and able to uh, receive and apply uh, information so quickly. You know, they've been through selection processes. They've been tested. They've, they've been evaluated. And so we are working with the, the absolute professional um, soldiers, uh, you know, in the military, sailors, Marines, um, but in the winter, it's the same thing. We take guys who have never skied before. We take them to resort for two weeks. That's it. We teach them how to ski. And then we have uh, extreme terrain roped off and, and we have critical tasks that they have to pass. Um, some of them don't pass the ski test. Um, but if they do, we immediately go into the backcountry. 
you know, and this is after two weeks of skiing. So we give them classes and instruction on, you know, snow science, avalanche safety, rescue, all of these things. And then we go right into the backcountry, get into ice climbing. And, and then we do winter ascents of 14ers. We do extreme cold weather survival to where they're building snow caves. We throw them in the water and make them survive for 36 hours after being, you know, frozen and nearly hypothermic. Mm. Uh, so, you know, like I said, with my job, you know, it, it worked out very well for me as, as a train up in itself for this, um, which was, it actually worked out quite well. Uh, right before I left for Nepal, we, uh, we were finishing our course and, you know, where we were doing our cold weather, uh, survival, it was 38 below. And, you know, we were out there for, for a week. And, and it was great. It was perfect. It's like, oh, sweet. I've got this down suit. I've got these big boots, my negative 40 bag. Perfect. And so I just use that, uh, you know, kind of gear prep and testing all of my stuff. Um, yeah. Wow. It sounds like, I mean, with your profession, you're teaching the best of the best, how to survive in the mountains in the worst conditions possible. It seems like, and forgive my naive, naivete, but like you would, it seems like Everest wouldn't be that tough for you. It seems like you would go over there and you're teaching the Sherpas how to survive, but no, no, uh, <laughs> no, man, the, the Sherpa there, oh man, they really are incredible. Uh, so strong and so, so proficient at what they do, but it did give me, uh, it gave me the confidence that I knew uh, I was very confident in my technical proficiencies and whatever would be needed or expected of me on the mountain as far as climbing ropes uh mountaineering rescue uh anchors ice screws all this all this stuff the, the technical uh side of it i was quite confident with um i've been in you know I've, I've been in cold weather uh you know even just not even with my job but you know living here in colorado where i do like you spend enough winters outdoors, you know, I, I think there's a lot to be said about just having a mountain sense, you know, understanding what, what the mountains are telling you, what the weather's telling you, what are the clouds doing? What are the winds doing? You know, how's your body reacting, you know, and adapting, um, you know, one thing with me, uh, you know, I have, uh, I, one, I have rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, so that, that plays, kind of into my decision making and then I also have Raynaud's disease mm. so I naturally have poor circulation right, right. to my hands and feet mm. and with my job you know we're out all winter you know skiing touring ice climbing doing these things so I've had to learn how to adapt you know like with my hands you know if, if your hands go you can't do anything so learning you know at any given time, I'll have two or three separate pairs of gloves on me in the winter, you know, keeping them in places. So they're always warm. They're drying out. You know, I have chemical hand warmers. I have different things. I have gloves to do rope technical work with, and then I have gloves to ski tour with, or I have gloves to, uh, to ski descent, you know, like warmer gloves, you know? And so really just living here in Colorado and doing what I do gave me a very, I think kind of a, a well-rounded base uh, to, to start to go for this. What I, what I didn't know and I had no idea about um, was how my body would adapt 
at extreme high altitude mm. uh, because again before before this attempt the the highest I had ever been was Kilimanjaro at 19,700 feet, you know, roughly 6,000 meters. And, you know, and I was pretty, I was pretty intimidated, uh, especially when, once I got into country and I, and I met the rest of the team, team members on this expedition, you know, I know you talked to Morgan, you mm-hmm. know, you heard his background, the mountains he had climbed yep. uh, before multiple times at altitude. And, a lot of the other team members were the same way. And a lot of the other team members had done multiple 8,000 meter peaks. Okay. And so it's like, cool. Well, here I am. Uh, I haven't done any of that stuff. I've been up to the top of Kili, which is a hike, you know, during the summer. Sure. And I'm sitting here, you know, telling myself I'm going to attempt this thing without the use of supplemental oxygen. Like it, it was pretty big. And, and I was, I was pretty intimidated. Um, but I knew I kind of had to just mentally kind of recenter my constantly just retell myself, recenter myself, you know, don't think too far ahead. Don't think too big, focus on the day, focus on the process and, you know, train, do what I can and listen to my body as, as I go up, you know, if I go up and something happens, it happens, but there's no use in me overthinking this and dwelling on this and intimidating myself to the point to where I'm so fearful that I don't even try, you know, I don't even start because I think a lot of times that that happens to folks. Uh, I've seen that happen. And, and it's, I, it's kind of heartbreaking because you, you, you know, I'm sure, you know, you've got friends, you've got people, you know, they said, Oh, I want to do this. or I want to do this race. I want to do this event, do this thing, but they allow their mind to um, control them and the fear of the unknown ends up debilitating them to where mm-hmm. some some people don't even try yeah. and you do enough things and you put yourself out there enough times um i really think you you can come to learn that you know that fear of the unknown is is never as bad as you think it is once you get into it and you put your head down and you start this process it's just like anything else you just work through it uh, but that was definitely you know a concern for me and something i really had to kind of work through as it yeah. went on yeah and to your credit, you really put it out there into the world, what you're going to be doing, you know, you're sharing it with people, you're trying to raise money, um, you know, podcasts, social media, like letting people know this is my plan. I, and I may fall down on my face, but this is, this is what I'm going for. Yeah. And, you know, obviously there's a couple of reasons with that. You know, like I said, Green Beret Racing, they, they brought me on in October and it, such an incredible organization you know they're opening up opportunities just like the you know this opportunity for me right um you know this really trying to combat in any way they can you know the post-traumatic stress and then traumatic brain injury by just getting individuals out find something you're passionate about they'll fund it they'll support it you know just to just to get people out and, and really kind of striving and pushing again. So it was really important for me to do, you know, as much as I could uh, for that organization to support them because, you know, this, it doesn't end, you know, with my, with my expedition, I was, I'm, I'm really hoping this is just kind of the starting the kicking off point, you know, to get more individuals involved, more guys involved, like let's get out, let's do this together. And now, like I came home and, you know, there's a half dozen, new guys that are on our human performance team doing mountain bike races and getting into ultras and doing other events. And it's like, 
dude, it's so cool to see. And so, you know, I told you when we did the first episode, like, this is really, you know, putting me out of my comfort zone. And it's, it's a big stretch for me to do this, you know, especially like, with my background and, and everything, you don't, you don't talk about what you're going to do. You go out, you execute, you get it done, and you let your work do the talking. And that's very much my, my mindset, especially when it comes to, to mountains or, or, or chasing big objectives, because there's so many things that, that can go wrong. And uh, I'm not a big, I don't know, I hate to say this, but I'm not a big social media guy. And mm. it's really hard for me. Uh, it, it's actually really hard for me to put anything out on social media. And so kind of going out there and talking about it and putting it out like, hey, I'm going to go do this thing. You know, I, I, I see that a lot. And I, it's just not the way I am. Mm-hmm. Um, I would rather just kind of go try to do something if I get it done cool and, and not be that. Um, but really uh, coming into with uh, GBR, it really opened up my eyes a little bit. It's like, okay, if you're really going to do this and you're really going to try to be an example for other dudes and, you know, get people out and start pursuing, you know, their own passion and things that they, you know, they want to go after, like, you got to put it out there and you got to put your, you got to put everything on the table. And so I kind of looked at it as like, yeah, I'm, I'm putting a lot on the table right now because not only am I going to go attempt this, but I'm sitting here telling people I'm going to go attempt this. I know good and well that if I fail and I royally screw this up, I just blasted it out on podcasts, on Instagram. And it's like, yeah, this dude talked all over the place and then he fell flat on his face, you know? So I I knew that. Um, But the, uh, the weight and the potential outcome of, of, what I could do and what we could do with Green Beret racing to, you know, raise money and raise awareness and help other dudes. Like it was totally worth it. And Mm. I just knew when it came time for me to start putting in work on the mountain, I, I couldn't screw it up. I had to get after it. So. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, you know, you you didn't give yourself a, a way to back out. Like, I mean, sure you can fall down on your face publicly, but who wants to do that? You know? So it's, uh, yeah. I mean, did you learn anything from that experience? Do you feel like you were able to grow at all by putting yourself out there and sort of stepping out of your comfort zone? I did. Yeah. And, and I think for me, it, it really helped. And one of my, uh, one of my senior leaders, he, uh, he really put it to me in a good way that resonated. He's like, Hey man, I know you, I, I know that you're not the type of person that likes to do these things, but you're not doing it for you. You're doing it for the organization. You're doing it for, for your brothers. Like you're doing it to help other dudes. Mm -hmm. Like think of it like that. Mm -hmm. And I think it really, it just kind of gave me the opportunity, you know, because I leading by example is a really big, really big thing with me. And um, you know, because it's big in, in my community, for guys just to talk to one another, you know, if something's off, right. Like if if I've got stuff going on in my head or I've got stuff I'm dealing with, that's kind of in dark place, you know, I, I never want to think, I don't, I never want anyone to think less of me that Jason's weak or Jason, you know, is dealing with depression or or whatever it may be. right? Right. But I kind of looked at it like, all right, this is just another, another Avenue, another form for me to, 
try to help my guys and, and try to be that example. Like, yeah, like put yourself out, out, put yourself out there. And it's just something else, another challenge, you know, and that's how we grow. That's how we, we improve and evolve as, as people, you know? Yeah, that is how we grow, man. I mean, for me in my life, and obviously it's a little bit different than your story, but you know, you, you acquire these skills and you're sort of into whatever it is you're into, whether it's ultra running or for me, I was into martial arts for years and then you're kind of doing it for yourself. Maybe there's some ego involved, but then eventually, I don't know if it comes with age or just experience, but you get to a certain point where you want to be able to pass that off and help other people. And um, you've acquired this knowledge and you ha might have this, these weird skills, whatever they may be. And it's like, I, I want to pass this off to my brothers. I want to be able to help people. And uh, yeah, it seems like with age, that's, that's what, it, what it comes down to. If you don't mind, talk about the, um, the six-week lead-up while you were in Nepal and, and what that experience was like. I mean, from what I understand, there's a big acclimation process of going up from camp to camp, and up and down maybe even. I, I don't know exactly, but uh, just explain that if, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so really the climatization process starts with your trek. Uh, to Everest Base Camp. I uh, fly into Lukla that's roughly 9,000 feet and then you have about a eight to ten day trek just getting up to base camp. You know, it sits at 17,500 feet. Um, work your way up to base camp, uh, take some recovery days because even there, you know, base camp you're still over 17,000 feet so you see, you know, a lot of people have hard times with headaches or poor sleep, they lose appetite. So it takes them a few days just to acclimatize, you know, to that elevation. Um, and that's anywhere from, I don't know, I think once everyone else got there, it was three or five, three to five days. Uh, and then we did a couple, you know, hikes um, around base camp, just getting up to, uh, you know, 18, 19,000 feet coming back down and, and you're just slowly adapting and letting your body process and recover um, until your first rotation up the mountain. Was there um, any struggles there for you getting up to 18,000 feet? Was, was that difficult at all? No, no, really. it wasn't. And, and I like, you know, obviously with, with my attempt, um, you know, attempting without supplemental oxygen, I, I looked at this climb and this expedition, I, I think probably a lot differently than, than a lot of other folks, just because it, it really is. It's, man, it's so big and it's so far out there and it's so incredibly dangerous uh, to make that attempt, mm -hmm. um, especially on your first attempt ever on that mountain. Um, so I, as soon as we started moving on the trail, um, like, like I said, from Lukla, the first day of the trek, I took every day and, and I use that as a training day. I was like, okay, this is my, this is my fitness for today. I had everything dialed out, planned out. And you know, I told myself early on, like I, no matter what the outcome of this expedition is, I will leave no room for question on, could I have done more? You know, maybe I should have done this. I, it was my intent to put everything on the table every day and make the most of it. So, you know, even during that trek to, uh, to base camp, all of the, the different sections to different town villages we're going to, 
you know, I got after it. You know, I had mm-hmm. my pack on my back and, and I was moving, you know, I was trying to gain fitness, you know, getting, forcing my body to adapt. Um, and then, yeah, I got, you know, got to base camp and, you know, I say we did two hikes. Um, we actually went up to a Pomoria, it's a n- neighboring mountain there at base camp. We went up to their advanced base, uh, advanced base camp and it was 19,000 feet. I went on two hikes um, and then the rest of the group, they kind of split in half. So one group was taking a rest day, the group would go. And then I went the second day with the other group. Um, you could, I, I, I felt good. My, my body was recovering, no issues with headaches, sleep. Uh, my appetite, you know, was up. I was forcing food and hydration. And I just, I, I kind of looked at it as, as they're like, if I feel like I can move, if my body's feel like feeling like it's recovering, then I'm going to move. I, I'm going to do what I can. If I hit a point to where I'm overtraining or, you know, I'm tired, I'm having different issues, or I do have effects of altitude. Yeah, absolutely. You know, stop it there and, and take a rest day, recover. But I just kind of looked at it. If, if I feel like I can move, I, I, I need to move. So we did that. Uh, and then we, we started our first rotation up the mountain and the first rotation was a 10 day rotation. And we moved from base camp up through the Kumbu icefall, uh, to camp one, which camp one is right around 19,000, 19,500 feet, maybe. Um, so definitely good elevation gain, you know, but with that, you, you know, you are going through the Kumbu Icefall, right? So that's the, that section in itself is really the most dangerous and the most exposed section on that route. Mm-hmm. Um, the day we went through, uh, I got to camp, camp one, um, actually Morgan, he was with me and a couple other guys. We were in the first group and there's a very vertical section after a big crevasse crossing with like three ladders attached to each other. And I think it was an hour or two after we came through, the ladder collapsed. A lady fell into the crevasse, and then another Sherpa fell into the crevasse and broke his back. Damn. You know, so there was two two separate helicopter rescues that happened basically right as we were arriving at Camp One. Wow. Um, and, and you see these things; they 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 kind of happen nonstop, uh, especially in the like I said, the the ice fall because there's there's the danger and the risk of crevasses. You have Serac falls, uh, avalanches, you know, the, the ropes and all the safety lines, everything's attached to the, to the wall by ice screws, you know? Um, but the problem is with a lot of warming and heating, those screws melt out and the anchors blow. So people will pull a line, blow that anchor, and then, you know, fall off the mountain, fall into a crevasse. So, uh, so we all worked up, uh, that first day we got to camp one and we took, I think we had like three rest days at camp one. Um, and those days, uh, felt good. So I just did easy day hikes up to, uh, day climbs, I guess, up to camp two. Um, just again, getting some fitness. I felt good. Um, and the way I kind of looked at it, the more time I can get my body up to, higher altitude, the more red blood cells, the more I can adapt, you know, and, mm-hmm. and do that. So uh, then we all moved up to camp two and we were at camp two, which is a 21,500 eh, feet. We were there, I think on that first rotation for about four days. 
And the first day uh, we get there and then the next day is just a recovery day. Cause now you are, you're, you're at high altitude, sure. you know? Um, so definitely a rest day. And then again, there uh, I did uh, with a buddy, we did one, one climb up to about 22,500 feet came down and then I actually went uh, and then I ended up starting with a buddy, but he turned around early uh, the next day, all the way to camp three. So now it's at 23,500 feet. And I just kind of got up to camp three, tagged it, kind of took a breath, like, okay, how do I feel? Yep. Everything's all systems are go feel good. No worries. Come back down to camp two. And then the next day I went up with another group. And we went to camp three and actually spent the night there, hmm. uh, came down to camp two. And then after that, we went all the way back down to, uh, to base camp. Um, oh, wow. and so this is the point where this was the main, you know, all the rest of the climbers, you know, were um, climbing with supplemental oxygen. So after this rotation, they all went down to lower villages that was that was the end of their uh, climatization process. So they went down to lower villages to really rest, recover, mm. uh, and wait for our summit window um, for for our attempt. And there's one other climber uh, in the group with me, Alex, and he was attempting without the use of uh, supplemental oxygen as well. So him and I moved together a lot on the mountains, and okay. especially after that first rotation, we were, you know, climbing partners with everything we did. And I was really fortunate with the, the guide company I was with. Uh, I, you know, we developed our own training plan, like our rotations, my, you know, like the day climbs, I was telling you about the things I did. That was just simply like, Hey, I want to go do this for this reason. Like, okay, yep, go ahead. And then, so for our second rotation, we developed that. Uh, and I ended up only, I took uh, two days off between our first and second rotation. And then Alex and I, we pushed uh, back up on the mountain and we ended up doing a uh, straight push uh, from base camp to camp two. And I think maybe it's a little, so context wise, like, you know, base camp to camp one, uh, I think on average, you, it's probably between eight and 10 or 12 hours, uh, camp one to camp two, average is probably uh two to four hours and then so on and so forth and i can talk about that on the mountain so they're big movements you know they're, yeah. they're big days in the mountains um so we we did a push uh from base camp to camp two and i was i was pretty amazed like just at how well the body does adapt and the production of red blood cells and letting your your body recover um, you know, cause I do everything based off of heart rate, you mm. know, especially with running background. Right. And I decided well, even out there, the, you were using yeah. heart rate, even out there. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And I decided, you know, I, I approached it the same way I do a, a longer distance ultra, a bigger ultra. And for me, 140, I'm 39 years old. So 140 beats a minute. I was like, I'm going to keep it low, moderate, and then I'm going to shut it down you know, mm -hmm. to, to make sure I don't burn myself out or overtax myself. Mm -hmm. So that's what I did. And I was pretty impressed, uh, on the second rotation up, you know, 
I still didn't break that 140 threshold, but, you know, I think we cut over an hour off of our time to camp one. We pushed straight to camp two and cut, you know, about 45 minutes off of that time. And I was like, wow, like we're really not working any harder. We're talking, we're, we're being smart. We're not pushing ourselves too much. Um, but seeing the process work, um, Mm. that was, that was really, that was a big confidence boost uh, Mm. for me. So we get up to camp two that day. The thing that caught us off guard, um, is how hot it was. So the Western Coombe, uh, is the, the section above the, the Coombe ice fall and you're, you're above 20,000 feet and it's South facing. So it, it actually has the strongest, uh, like source of, of sun and, and radiation, radiation off of the snow and anywhere else in the world. And when, when I heard that, I was like, wait, really? And then I thought about it. I was like, oh yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense uh, because it is in this coombe. It's in this big valley. And so the sun is just reflecting off of everything coming off of the ground. And on that day, it was over 90 degrees. Oh, wow. You know, so we started two o'clock in the morning. It's, uh, you know, below zero and <laughs> snowing. Mm-hmm. And then we hit 90 degrees. We're down to our base layers. And I carried on that movement, two liters of water with me. And uh, we both end up ha- having some heat exhaustion uh, by the time we arrived to, to camp two. And it, it took me about four or five hours to get uh, enough fluid, enough electrolytes, liquids back in me uh, to kind of straighten my head back out and kind of feel normal and actually start recovering. Wow. Uh, so that was a huge, huge lesson learned that uh, that's actually been the cause for some failed uh, attempts without oxygen is just the heat uh, in the Western Coombe for, for other climbers. And we were so fortunate to find that out on a rotation as opposed to our summit attempt. Uh, totally. Yeah. Two liters of water doesn't seem like that's very much, um, it, especially for a day like that. Um, why only two liters? Water's heavy, dude. Yeah, totally. It, what, water's heavy. Um, yeah. And this is where, you know, it is so critical with any of this stuff. You have to know your body. Mm-hmm. You have to have your, your nutrition, your hydration uh, dialed and, and know how um, to, to fuel, to recover, to keep moving, you know, with, without overtaxing. Mm-hmm. But also when you're, you know, anything in the mountains, but especially up there, you don't want to, you can't carry anything extra. You have mm-hmm. to have everything dialed to only things that you need for whatever the section of that movement is, whether it be from camp to camp or your summit push, you know, you, you want to move, you know, kind of the ideal is like, you know, fast and light um, uh, and as light as you can. So for me, you know, I think on my, my last trip, I went from base camp to camp two in five hours. So I know myself well enough, you know, for moving in the mountains and over a long distance, like, you know, I don't need any more water than that. You know, I still, I, I time my water, you know, every, uh, during a race or an event, you know, it's every 15 to 20 minutes, depending on what I'm doing. Um, up there, I drank water every 30 minutes, took in calories every hour. So I still have my watch. I still kept the process and, and everything dialed. And it worked out, it worked out quite well. Uh, I never carried more than 
uh, two liters of water on me. Okay. And then I, I had with those two liters, just like a race, you know, I carry, uh, I broke it up into like smaller 500 milliliter Nalgene's. So then each one has my electrolyte drink in it, you know, and in, in, in different mixes. So you're always getting calories and electrolytes as well. But mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, um, you know, when when I'm moving around in the mountains here in Colorado, like you said, you kind of get to know your own body. I know that if I'm going to climb this mountain, I, I if I want to go fast and light, I don't need that much water because I've done this mountain a handful of times or whatever. And yeah, you just kind of figure it out as you go. Um, so, okay. So talk about like the week before your summit and what that looked like. Are you just like waiting for days on end for a weather window or what's that like? Or did you have like a certain day planned? Like, okay, this is going to be, this is the day we're going for it. Yeah. So we knew early on that the first weather window was going to be around the 13th of May. We saw that coming in and uh, especially myself and Alex, we immediately knew we wanted to push to at least the, the second window. One, because especially attempting without O's, you, you cannot afford to stand around or get stuck in a line or in a big queue of people. Mm. And two, um, you know, between the 13th and, you know, I summited on the 21st of May, um, the, the weather, not only was it a second window, but it was, notably warmer you know the temperatures warmed up the winds died uh another you know huge risk fast factor with that attempt is the risk of hypothermia and frostbite just because you're so much more prone to it your body's so much more colder without that additional oxygen so we knew we were immediately going to push to that second window no question and then it just it ended up we had uh i think three of our climbers, they actually summited around the 15th. Um, but the rest of us, we all summited on the 21st, on that okay. 21st window. So for me, you know, we, we did that second rotation and I, it was critical for me during my rotations to get up to eight, 8,000 meters to 26,000 feet, you know, into the death zone, because I had to, find out if I, I could even get that high, if my right. body would adapt, if I could function, you know, I, before I sit here and I, I say, yes, I'm going to attempt to summit without oxygen. I have to know that I can make it to 8,000 meters. So on the, the first rota rotation, I was actually going to attempt it the night I slept at camp three. Um, but we had uh, snowfall the evening before and high winds and the avalanche danger was, I thought it was quite high. Um, we actually had an avalanche that night come down within a hundred meters of, of our tent and, you know, snow's hitting the walls and, and it's just this incredibly loud, big avalanche that went down the, the Lotse face. And then when I woke up the next morning, check the snow conditions. There's definitely a, a slab that had formed that I just wasn't comfortable with. So I decided that first rotation not to go to camp four to, to come back down. So on the second rotation up with Alex, I knew I had to make <clears throat> camp four 
And so we, after we pushed past camp two, we went straight to camp three, stayed the night. And that morning we woke up and, and there was a lot of weather coming in. Um, this was actually, this was early on. Uh, and there were multiple teams that were going for the summit that got pushed off of the mountain because it was extreme weather advisory, very high winds. Um, so I decided to leave camp three, Alex and I left together. Uh, and then you naturally, you know, you kind of find your own pace and, and we split up a bit. Um, but I, I told myself I would assess, you know, the weather and the conditions and the mountain as I'm going up. And, you know, if it's not smart, if it doesn't make sense, turn around and come down. But I knew I had to give it a good effort to, to get to that elevation, that altitude. So I ended up making it up uh, to the South Call to Camp 4. And I'm passing teams and Sherpa and people coming down, you know, telling me to get off the mountain, go down high winds. You know, it's like, well, I'm not going for the summit. I'm just trying to, you know, I'm just going to Camp 4. And, and, you know, and I, I did once I got up to the South Call, it was 60 plus mile an hour wind gust kind of takes you off your feet a little bit. And it, it was pretty real, but I knew I was only going to be there long enough to get to the altitude and then come right back down. Okay. And it, okay. so he did that, um, go back down I meet up with Alex, uh, lower on the mountain. And then we end up working our way back to base camp and we built out our schedule because we had already known that we wanted to summit, go for our summit attempt around the 20th, 21st. So we built out, uh, after we finished that second rotation, we would have five or six days of just straight rest and recovery uh, before we started that, that summit attempt. And we did. And is that rest all the way down at base camp? Yeah. So I went down and again, we get to base camp. Everyone else was already gone. You know, they're down lower. Alex, he decided that, you know, he wanted to stay down in a lower village. So the next day he went down uh, to a village that's around, uh, around 14,000 feet. Uh, so much, much lower, you know, and he could sleep on a bed and have warm food and recover or no, it's 13,000 feet. Um, so he did that. I chose to stay at base camp uh, because there's a lot of, you know, you have all the climbers, the expeditions, but then you also have trekkers and there's a lot of people that are sick. Um, they're coughing, they're wheezing, they have, you know, chest colds, uh, stomach virus, all this, all these things. And I was actually the only, I don't know how, but the only person on our expedition that didn't get sick uh, the whole time. So I was so adamant about not changing anything uh not risking about you know putting myself and exposing myself to other individuals and possibly getting sick but then also there's a lot of water and foodborne illness uh Mm. that you that that people get and experience and diarrhea and different things and i was like i i don't want to risk getting sick from somebody else and i'm used to the food i know the food i have no issues with it i'm comfortable at base camp i'm just gonna stay here Okay. Uh, it, and so I, I decided to do that and it worked out well because I got to, you know, I'm in direct communication, you know, each day with, uh, with the owner of the expedition lead guide, you know, so we're constantly looking at weather and we're planning and strategizing, getting ready, you know, for the, for the summit push. So I, I stayed at base camp and, and I'm glad I did. It worked out pretty well. Okay. Okay. 
And up till now, there's been no use of supplemental oxygen, right? And in other people who are going up to camp three and four are using oxygen. Is that right? So up to this point within our expedition, um, there has been no use of supplemental oxygen other than emergency um, cases. So nobody's been climbing or training with it. We did have a, oh. a climber on that first rotation when everyone was there um, at camp two. Uh, I, I ended up meeting up with him early in the morning because he was actually planning on descending because he had been quite sick and just having a really hard time adapting to, to altitude, uh, having a lot of uh, acute mountain sickness issues and uh, AMS issues and stuff like that. So I see him early in the morning and he's just trying to put on his crampons on getting ready to go off the mountain. And, and I'm watching him and I, I could tell that he's off. You know, I could tell talking to him, he's not normal. He's kind of slurring a little bit, kind of cloudy. And then he finally asked me, he's like, Jason, will you help me put on my crampons? I'm like, what's up, man? What, what, what's wrong? So he shows me and I, it was very apparent that he was dealing with high altitude cerebral edema, you know, swelling in the brain. Uh, and so at that point, uh, I told him like, Hey, like you're not going anywhere, you know, or staying here. And we got oxygen, uh, medical oxygen for him, put him on supplemental oxygen and monitored, monitored him for 24 hours. Uh, and then he was able to, to descend, but nobody climbing had used oxygen. When I was coming down for my second rotation, uh, the other teams, other team expedition teams on the mountain that were starting their summit push, mm -hmm. they were on, you know, supplemental oxygen. And most of them were all starting at camp two. Mm -hmm. um, they would, they would start on supplemental oxygen, move up to camp three, sleep on oxygen there. And then obviously for, for the rest of the climb. Yeah. Okay. Okay. One of the Instagram questions that came in before, uh, we started this was, uh, how, how many people out there did you see that were just like really inexperienced and maybe didn't even belong out there? Like your experience was pretty vast. It sounds like, I mean, you've had a lot of time in the mountains and you studied up on this thing. When we, when I talked to Morgan, when I had him on the show, he had done several big mountains before Everest. Um, so you guys had the experience, the knowledge, the know-how, did you see people out there that you thought, good grief, they don't even belong out here. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely do. You know, it, it's just, it's going to happen. It's a part of that, that mountain. Um, you know, you, you see the inexperience with, um, technical and proficiencies, people not knowing how to properly or safely repel or attach into ropes or how to put on and size crampons, um, you know, how to move through or move through and negotiate fixed lines and transitions. And, um, definitely see and you, when you see stuff like this happen, um, it's not, like uh, an immediate like frustration or like anger or judgment. It's like, I don't want to see you get hurt. Like that scares me because I don't want to see anybody, you know, get hurt, get injured, obviously get killed on that mountain. But then you also 
you know, take into account, you know, everybody has a, a Sherpa with them as well. Like my climbing Sherpa was Lock Bagela's Sherpa and we did everything together, you know? And so every climber on that mountain has a Sherpa that's with them as well. And you see these, you know, improficiencies or the lack of fitness, the, you know, whatever it may be. And it's just like, it scares you because you don't want to see anything happen to them. And you definitely don't want to see anything happen to the individual that it's their responsibility to keep them safe and get them up and down that mountain. You know, I, through my rotations, I ended up seeing same people multiple times, you know, kind of going up or down the mountain or, you know, like I said, doing day hikes, you know, whatever. And I remember seeing individuals down low who were just clearly so out of it. Cause I try to be, you know, like when I'm, even when I'm moving in the mountains or during events, you know, in, in the same way on, on this expedition, I love talking to people. I love, you know, greeting people. Hey, how you doing? Like high stoke positivity kind of thing. Um, and I enjoy interacting with people and, you know, you see somebody like, Hey, good morning. How are you? Or like, Oh, it's such a beautiful day. And they don't respond or they can't talk. They can't walk straight. And, you know, there were multiple people I passed low on the mountain, like near camp one who I, you know, I, I kind of recommend like, Hey, you know, maybe take a break. Do you have food? Do you have water? Here's some snacks, you know, maybe, we, you know, go down and they just like, no, I'm going up, I'm going up, I'm going up. And, and, and you see this stuff and you just like immediately in the back of your mind, like, gosh, I, you know, I, I hope they come it's back down. Dangerous. You know, yeah, right. It, 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 it's, yeah, it's, it's scary. And I had, I knew this was something I was going to encounter, right? We've all seen the movies, documentaries, and we've all heard about this stuff. Um, and I didn't know how I was going to um, perceive it or handle it um, when, once I did come across it you know, from, from my background, you know, training, you know, military experience, you know, soft guys, I can talk to them and I do talk to them and, and direct them and train and instruct much different than I'm going to a, a random individual on the mountain, you know, mm -hmm. and, and plus in that environment, like you have to be very cautious you know if you see something that is a blatant unsafe act or somebody doesn't know how to repel or somebody puts someone else at risk when you're in that environment and in that situation you have to be very mild-mannered calm very almost like supportive in a way because the last thing you want to do is create any more stress to an already stressful and potentially dangerous environment you know mm -hmm. and what I came to find out and, and kind of learn through this process is even the individuals who just me as Jason, if I were to look at them or, or watch how they were climbing or negotiating things and like, in my mind, maybe they're unsafe or they're unprepared. They're not qualified really to be here and be attempting this mountain. Um, you know, so many people hire uh, a personal Sherpa. And I didn't know quite what that was until I got there. Hmm. And, you know, obviously for the Sherpa, all of the Sherpa, you know, the, you know, these are huge expeditions for them that, you know, it's their annual income. You know, hmm. you, you take an individual who their monthly average income is a hundred dollars and they're going to be making a few thousand over the course of six weeks. Like that's substantial. Hmm. And what I found out was the personal Sherpa, the people that hire personal Sherpa, 
they pay a lot of additional money that goes directly to that Sherpa. So the Sherpas that do that are, are the more experienced, the more seasoned, they're very technically proficient. You know, they've had multiple, multiple summits. You know, they, they know what they, they're doing. They know what to expect from their client. They know that they will be doing everything for them and they do. Um, so it's kind of a, it's kind of a different world, man. Like it's not, you know, it, it doesn't line up with, you know, what I do here, what I would expect out of any one of my students. But again, you know, that's, that's how people make their living and that's the mountain. And that's, you know, it, it is a, you know, it is a business and, and, you know, you know, luckily everyone on our expedition, you know, got up and got down safely and, you know, everybody came home. So yeah, it was learning experience. So what is the difference there between the, the Sherpa that you had and someone coming in and paying for a personal Sherpa? What exactly are they doing for that client that costs extra? Oh, man, um, everything. <laughs> they're, they're, they're helping pack all of their gear, carrying any extra gear they may have, sleeping bag, extra coats, boots. Um, they're working with them one-on-one on, on training for the technical skills, you know, helping size crampons. If they need extra gear kit, uh, they'll actually purchase it over the phone from Namche Bazaar. Um, that's at 11,300 feet. And like there were multiple helicopters flying in and out of base camp, bringing a sleeping bag or a heavy puffy coat or boots or crampons, you know, and then, you know, even to the point, literally, of doing everything on the mountain and on the rope for that client. So, you know, when you're moving on a fixed line or, or you're climbing, you know, you have your Jumar, your Ascender, you have another locking carabiner that's attached to the rope as a safety attachment. And these Sherpa, they're clipping all of that for their clients. Oh, wow. They're reclipping. You know, if, if a client goes on to repel, they're clipping them into repel, putting them on repel. They get down the, down the repel, unclipping that. And so literally, uh, literally everything, everything for them. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, like I said, I, I, there were, yeah, I definitely had a, a hard time with uh, seeing some of the things I did, but you know, it's, it's on my place to, to judge or, you know, to say what's right or what's not, you know, it's only, it's, just my opinion. Um, yeah. but yeah, you, you definitely see things because again, and, and for me, everything went back to, to safety. You know, I, I, I don't want to see anyone get hurt. I want to see everybody come off, you know, that mountain. And, you know, the, the thought that always runs through my mind is being self-sufficient, you know, like, what would you do if that person wasn't there? Could you, you know, clip into the rope yourself? Could you safely ascend or descend or repel? You know, and, and for me, and this is just Jason's personal opinion, but if you can't do that, then I don't know, maybe seek some training and preparation be, before you, you go and tackle that thing. Yeah. So it sounds like there are people who have summited Mount Everest that don't really have a mountaineering background or a ton of experience. Like say I'm a millionaire and I want to summit Everest. If I have enough money to pay the right people, that can be done. Yeah, yeah, it can be done. You know, and I, you know, 
yeah, with that too like right now like we're talking more like like technical proficiency mountaineering stuff mm-hmm. you know but but still like if you have the body and the physiology and the fitness and the the physical capability uh to move yourself up that mountain and safely get back down then then yeah you know it it, it can be done but i you know unfortunately i i saw um you know a former professional sponsored triathlete um incredible resume um and you know that was the same individual who had haste at camp two and you know unfortunately he didn't summit uh he ended up getting turned around uh, because of extreme exhaustion and we ended up having to do a rescue on him um that had been humbling well you know it yeah and and i don't know right each individual takes those um those circumstances differently but one thing you know for me you know out of our group of say 15 who are attempting this climb such a wide range um, of backgrounds and capabilities and, and things we've done from you know other professional athletes that were there with us to you know crossfitters ultra runner you know whatever and there is no man like I think you'd be hard pressed. Like, I don't think there's any way to actually find out how your body and how you're going to react at extreme high altitude um, before you get there. You have, you don't know until you're there, until you're in that process, you're actually moving up the mountain, you know, you're putting in physical work and, and you get to those altitudes. There's, you cannot like look across the table at somebody and be like, yep, you're going to make it. You're not, you know, you, you can't do that um and it was that was a super eye-opening experience and a great great learning experience just to see how you know my perhaps initial assumptions you know early on in the expedition to then see how people have performed and how their bodies adapted and how well they did you know um or how their bodies didn't adapt and they had a much harder much harder time yeah sure. super interesting Um, one of the other Instagram questions that came in is, um, like, if you don't mind shine a spotlight on the Sherpas, I mean, I'm sure you saw some incredible Sherpa out there that, um, are probably for lack of a better word, just badasses, right? I mean, athletic in their own right have made plenty of summits, um, I don't know if it was the Sherpa that you worked with or someone else that you saw out there, but shine a spotlight on them and like what they do on a daily or yearly basis. What does that look like? Dude, that's such a great question. Whoever asked that, like, thank you very much. Um, bro, they're, they're incredible. There is nothing that would happen on that mountain if it weren't for the Sherpa. I mean, starting from the beginning, the, the Kumbo Icefall, the only reason that route is possible is because they have the icefall doctors uh, that are hired by the government that go through and put up all of the fixed lines and build the ladders and build that route through the Kumbo icefall. And that route gets destroyed multiple times. It gets destroyed by climbers. It gets destroyed by avalanches. They're going through that icefall multiple times a day, checking the route, rebuilding the route, refixing the ropes, rebuilding the ladders. Uh, the Sherpa that we were with in, in our expedition, dude, they are, I don't even know how to like, physical, absolute 
beast. Like, you know, we're carrying, I, I carried for all intents and purposes, my own, my own stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we had, where I was with an expedition, so they had the tents, everything was set up and established, but like all of my gear, my clothing, my extra food, all of my food above camp too, I carried all of my stuff. Well, my, my pack weighed, you know, a whopping 32 to I think 44 pounds at the heaviest. And the Sherpa, our Sherpa are carrying six to eight oxygen bottles. They're carrying tents. They're carrying all of our food and supplies. They're carrying loads that weigh between 60 and 80 pounds. This entire route, you know, going in rotations, right? Um, And they're doing it faster than the typical climber can climb the route with nothing on their back mm-hmm. by unbelievable amounts of times. Like I'm talking hours and they do this stuff and you're just like so amazed by their capability. And then they're so nice. They're so humble. They're so positive. They're so happy. They are absolutely, they will do and they do do anything for their clients for their members for any for each other for anyone on that mountain like i it it was that culture um was one of the big reasons i really fell in love with nepal and the himalaya when michelle and i did the the base camp trek in 2018 and you know just some of the best people i've ever met in my life and then now to be able to do do this climb with them and you know my my uh climbing shirt but like i said lakba gelu you know, he's 45 years old and uh, this dude could absolutely keep up with me uh, in anything I, I was doing. Uh, obviously on my summit day, he was well ahead of me um, going up, but you know, he's moving at my pace with, you know, 60 pounds on his back. This was his 19th summit of Everest. Wow. And one night we were having dinner uh, at camp two we're sitting next to each other, we're, we're talking, you know, and, and I look at his left hand and he's missing uh, half of his pinky and then half of his uh, left ring finger. And I'm missing part of my left ring finger. I'm like, Oh, Hey, you know, I kind of make a joke, hold up my hand, you know, like, Oh, we're both, both missing fingers. Well, the difference is, is I lost my finger in a silly weightlifting accident block, but Gelu lost his fingers to frostbite on his first expedition because he was changing, changing a, an oxygen canister on the summit for a client for someone and else. He lost, exactly. And, you know, they, I, I can't say enough, man. Like they, they put it out there. And like I said, there's nothing that would happen on that mountain if it weren't for the Sherpa. Wow. What is the most summits you heard of uh, a Sherpa doing in a lifetime? Is there a number you can put on that? I mean, oh. just, I mean, just summoning Everest once is an incredible accomplishment, but I'm just picturing these Sherpas. You said yours had done it 19 times. Uh, what, what, is there a record? There is. And honestly, I, it's, I want to say it's mid twenties, uh, wow. maybe mid to high twenties now. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. And, incredible. you know, now like, you know, this is their, their job. So some of the Sherpa, you know, live there uh, either in the Kumbu or in Kathmandu, 
you know, that may be their one big job for the season, but a lot of them right after this expedition, you know, they're going to other mountains and they're just, they're constantly getting after they're doing multiple expeditions a year. And it is, you know, after seeing this, it's the danger that they put themselves in to do that job year after year, multiple times a year, being away from their families, you know, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Um, all right, man. Day of, I think we're to that point in the story. Um, when you woke up, um, the day of the summit, I'm guessing it was really, really early in the morning, <laughs> midnight, two in the morning. I'm guessing, did you know that that was going to be your day? Was there doubt in your mind? How did it all shake out? Ugh, all right. Yeah. So, um, summit day for me, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, like I said, we generally moved up the mountain as a, as a group, right. An expedition, but with everyone else that was on oxygen, they moved up a day ahead of us. And then, so they went from camp two, stayed a night at camp three, and then went all the way to camp four. And then they stayed an entire rest day at camp four, um, on, you know, supplemental oxygen. They started on oxygen. Most of them uh, started at camp two. Some of them started at camp three, but they were on oxygen all, uh, throughout this entire time. So from my attempt, uh, I knew that I had to get to camp four and allow myself enough time to recover and try to uh, eat and hydrate uh, before my summit push, but I couldn't spend too much time there because you, you really are like, you know, it's the death zone for a purpose. You, mm. you can't spend any additional time there. So for everyone else, they had a full rest day at camp four for my summit push. Uh, I actually started from camp. It started at camp three and I woke up at three o'clock in the morning and started moving. I think about four thirty five. I, I wake up early anyway. And so Woke up early, pushed up, started at five, got to camp four at 10 o'clock uh, that morning, linked up with all the, you know, all the other dudes like, hey, man, how, how you doing? See everybody again. And then I ended up spending eight hours at camp four uh, just throughout that day, just resting, eating. Um, one big concern of mine, obviously, you're very well aware is, is fueling right? You have to fuel you for recovery, but especially before a big push. And, you know, I've always read about and heard, you know, the body doesn't process food at that elevation. So a lot of people can't eat, maybe they're eating, you know, gummy worms or, uh, you know, gels and goose, things like that, things that are very easy to process more simple carb sugar type of stuff. And, uh, but for me, I noticed up to that point, like when I was at camp three, I was able, able to eat dehydrated meals, normal food, fine, no problem. So when I got to camp four, I was very happy because I was able to, as soon as I got there, I crushed a full, you know, 900 calorie meal. Nice. I had a Snickers bar, I had some trail mix. Uh, I just started pounding water, getting electrolytes and just really kind of trying to load up and fuel as much as I could. The only thing I couldn't do I couldn't sleep uh, while I was there. It was, it was high winds all that day was 40 to 60 mile an hour winds, just whipping across uh, the South call. But 
I, I was in my head too. Um, you know, at this point, I, you know, I mentioned my climbing partner, Alex, he was going to attempt without oxygen as well. But on our summit push, he had been dealing with the stomach uh, bug. So he wasn't feeling 100%. And he ended up uh, making the decision when we got to camp four to go on supplemental oxygen uh, for his attempt. So now we were going to get separated, you know, and so that kind of, you know, that, that plays into your mind a little bit because mm -hmm. he has summited multiple 8,000 meter peaks before he's a very, very profession, proficient climber, very experienced mountaineer. Um, and he has experience at extreme high altitude. So, you know, oh man, you kind of lose your climbing partner and it's like, okay. Um, I, it, it took, you know, for, for those eight hours in my tent was really just me getting recentered and refocused and like, yep. Okay. This happened, but I'm, I still have to do my thing. And, um, you know, you, for me anyway, I didn't fully comprehend or appreciate how dangerous, uh, it was, how risky it was until I got there and, and went through that experience for myself. You know, I mentioned like the, the risk for uh, hypothermia and for frostbite, especially um, making sure I had my, my gloves dialed. I bought battery heated socks for my feet to make sure, you know, try to avoid frostbite and, and to do all of these things to prepare that. And then, you know, the unknown of, you know, at six 30 that evening, I'm going to step out and, and I'm going to try to work up in, you know, to this extreme high altitude. And I have no idea, but, you know, my body will adapt or allow me to do it, but kind of, I ended up, you know, just like going to that place in your mind where you just kind of have to block out the noise and get very, very focused and very dedicated to where like, yep, I don't know how this is going to end up. I'm going to get in a bar fight, but I'm about to go get after it. And, and I, I kind of left in that mindset, like, yeah, it's, it's going to get pretty real. And so at 6.30 uh, p.m., I left camp four with Lakba uh, and, and we started our attempt. And for the first two hours, it, it was, it was quite windy still. Um, but we knew that later on in the night, the winds were going to die down. And then the next day in the morning was calling for low winds. And, and that was our biggest concern. That was why we chose this weather window. It's trying to find, you know, as little wind as possible. So we start to climb up. And the first big climb out of the South Col, um, you're climbing for about 1,800 feet, uh, probably 50 degree slope. Uh, we had fresh snow, so none of it was consolidated. So every step you take, you slide down, you know, six or eight inches. And so it really, it, it was work and, and it was a grind. And I could definitely notice, um, I noticed with me as I increased altitude, um, the, uh, the lack of oxygen affected me about every thousand meters. So about every say 3000 to 3,500 feet. And I noticed that once I got above, you know, cause once I got to camp four at 8,000, I really didn't feel anything different from what I had felt below that. But once I got to about 8,200 meters, it's like, okay, yeah, that, that was a shift. Like mm. definitely feeling the lack of oxygen here. And I had to be very diligent with my, uh, my pacing and my breathing 
my recovery. So I ended up getting into the system to where basically it was a pull on the rope, two steps, and then I would take two breaths for recovery. So, you know, it was like four or five breaths for every two steps. And I just, I ended up getting into the system, into this process. And it was, it was efficient and it kept me moving and it wasn't taxing me too much. I felt fine. And I was actually moving at a, a pretty decent pace relative, right? For that altitude. Um, and I just did that for hours, hundreds and hundreds of times. Uh, we got to the top of the balcony. So now probably at about 27,800, uh, somewhere around there. I, I take a break. I, you know, I take some gels, have some goos, drink some water, uh, and then start working up. Uh, you do a, a ridge traverse. And then the last real bit of climbing is to the south summit. And by this time, at the base of the south summit, I had been moving for about eight hours, eight hours, nine hours. And I get to the base of the south summit and I look back across the ridge traverse and I start, I see the line of headlamps, people mm-hmm. coming up, mm-hmm. uh, most of which were the rest of our uh, team members. You know, they had started a couple hours after me. And so now they, they were catching up to me. They caught up to me. And in my mind, you know, the first thing I think about is like, shoot, like, I'm not going to be that guy to hold everybody else up. I'm not going to create the line. I'm not going to create a queue. Plus, you know, just with our backgrounds, you see people coming up and catching you, you know, like, shoot, you know, like, I'm losing my pace. I'm slowing down. They're faster, faster than me. They're yeah. more fit than I am. And so, like, I start getting a bit stressed out. Um, and I think another part of, that kind of played into that as well, uh, Lakba, um, he was always ahead of me. So throughout the night, I'm just constantly seeing his headlamp, you know, a couple hundred meters ahead of me. So in my mind, I'm constantly like, shit. I'm too slow. I can't keep up with him. I'm moving too slow. And in that, obviously, you know, he's on supplemental oxygen, but it's just one of the, he is. Yeah. He's been on. Yep. And he was on oxygen from camp three. Um, And, but it's, you know, the way the mind, it plays with you. You never Mm -hmm. want to be that individual to hold somebody else back. And so anyway, go up and get to the South summit team comes up they catch up with me and I get up to um, this vertical rock band. It's like a vertical cliff section. And on, as you go up the, the South Ridge, you know, you go through four of these vertical rock bands. Well, they'd already caught up with me. And now there's a, you know, 30 to 40 foot section near vertical rock. I know I will hold them up. So I let, you know, the first, I don't know, maybe three or four, go ahead of me because I don't want to hold them up. I don't want to cause a, a cue. And as soon as I let them pass, the first climber gets to that, that vertical rock section and can't figure out how to climb it. And it's stuck there. Mm. Can't negotiate it. So we ended up, I ended up just standing there, you know, for close to 20 minutes waiting now. Wow. And, you know, in my mind, as soon as that happened, I was like, shit, I immediately regret this decision, you know? I should have just been selfish. I should have just stayed doing what I was doing and, 
and focused on on me because I I'm the only climber there attempting without you know supplemental mm-hmm. oxygen and so I'm I'm at the highest risk right now but so finally they they get through and we start moving and I'm kind of in the middle of the line of you know 15 to 20 climbers now and they're all moving at you know somewhat similar pace so again I don't, you know, I'm not going to hold them up and slow them down. So I end up pushing myself too hard. Uh, and I outpace myself through this vertical section of the rock band. And when I get to the top of it, I start hyperventilating. I, I, I can't get oxygen. I can't breathe. I start getting dizzy. I'm still on my feet. But it takes me, you know, probably eh, five, maybe 10 minutes to, to recover. And to get everything back, heart rate low, oxygen, breathing again, it's like, okay, cool. You know, that, that was a hard effort. I know it was too hard of an effort, but I can recover. Okay. So, so I, I want to stop you right there. I want to understand. So you were climbing up and were you still paying attention to your heart rate and trying to keep it under 140 mm-hmm. up until that point? Good question. And no, I ended up, um, I realized that after I got above, um, really like camp three and above mm-hmm. heart rate was kind of out the window okay. because everything is oxygen dependent. Now, yep. you know, er- everything revolves around pacing and breathing and, and just trying to, to find air. So heart rate, I was actually surprised, uh, for the most part at extreme high altitude, my heart rate was very low, but I'm breathing very, very hard trying to find oxygen. Yeah. So I ended up deciding, uh, on my summit push, uh, I just, you know, I, I had my baseline established. I, you know, it was kind of there. And then I I didn't take my heart rate monitor on the summit push. It was all based off of, uh, respiratory rate. Got it. Got it. Okay. And then you pushed yourself a little bit too hard, uh, up that vertical part. And then you were just hyperventilating once you got to the top of that. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And um, what happened from there? Yeah. So recovered from that first one. And I, I did the same thing through the second and the third rock bands. So I was able to recover, you know, thinking like, okay, yep, it's hard, but I, I kind of have it dialed. And now I get to the, the last vertical band and I was about 28,500 feet. Uh, I had no idea how close I was to the actual South Summit. Uh, I get through the last cliff band and start hyperventilating again. And then the lights go out. I, I pass out. Damn. And when, when I open my eyes and I, I come to, you know, my face is in the snow, I'm on the ground and I had lost complete control and function of, of my bowels. I was, you know, my body was it shut down. It was releasing. I was shitting and pissing myself and I couldn't stop it. I couldn't control it. And you know, this, this has never happened. Well, that's definitely never happened to me before, but <laughs> you know, I, I've been in other situations where, you know, a little high risk kind of put myself out there. Um, I've, I've been unconscious before. Um, but this time for whatever reason, as soon as I came to the first thought that crossed my mind was Michelle and it it was nothing like big blown up you know this happens in milliseconds so quick but the first thought that crossed my mind was Michelle 
And that immediately told me I have to get home. And that made the decision very, very easy for me to go on supplemental oxygen Mm -hmm. at that point, because Mm -hmm. I had always told myself, you know, from the beginning, um, I I knew I was going to have to push my body very close to the limit. I knew I was going to have to put myself out there, but I will make sound decisions in the mountains. And at the end of the day, summit or not, like I will come home. You know, that's the, the, the goal is to, you know, hopefully summit the priority is to come home. And so in that moment, when I realized like that, I had lost control, my body had shut down and it it was time to, to go on supplemental oxygen. So, uh, go ahead. So, I mean, your body probably thought that you were dying, right? Am I understanding that right? Like, I mean, you're pissing and shitting yourself. You blacked out. How long were you unconscious for? And yet, I mean, your, your body, you, your body thought you were dying. Yeah. And I'm sure it was pretty quick, right? Probably, you know, seconds. Um, uh, but it was a quite extreme case of, you know, high altitude cerebral edema, you know, it, my brain shut down and it was, Mm -hmm. it was trying to survive it at that point. Um, yeah. And I mean, I guess I've had, near death experiences. And I'm guessing that you probably have in your line of work too. And like, when you come back and wake up, you immediately think of your family and your loved ones and what's going to happen to them without me. And you sort of go into this survival mode of, okay, I have to survive this right now. It's like your, you, your, yeah, your survival mentality goes to the next level there for lack of a better way to describe it. But so that was the point that you decided to go on to oxygen. And I'm guessing your Sherpa was carrying extra oxygen for you, or how does that work? Yep. So Lock Bigelu, uh, he carried one emergency bottle for me. Um, you know, that, that was an extra eight pounds he was carrying <laughs> just for me, you know, mm. on his back. Uh, but you know, when it happened, he was just a few steps above me and to my left. So as soon as I made that decision, I just looked down. him as like, Lockba, I need to go on oxygen. He was like, okay. So we got my canister, regulator, mask, everything set up in my pack, went on oxygen. And, you know, a lot of times you just kind of hear like, oh, going on supplemental oxygen, but you don't really understand what, what that means or how that relates, you know, because the oxygen canisters, they have regulators on them. So you can control the airflow and the amount of oxygen that is breathed through through the mask. And okay. just for reference, um, while people were sleeping, uh, they would sleep on one to two liters of oxygen. And then while they're moving and climbing, um, I think the average is probably around four liters of oxygen per minute. And I heard of climbers going up to eight to 12 liters of oxygen, uh, per minute, just incredible amounts. Wow. Um, I only had, like I said, I had the one emergency bottle of oxygen and at two liter, two liters per minute, that canister will last for around eight hours. So I went on three liters a minute, um, uh, because I, I, I needed some oxygen. I absolutely needed to recover, but I also knew I had to be smart and to make sure I had enough oxygen to get me back down to camp four, uh, because I'm still above 8,000 meters. Sure. So 
I went on three liters per minute there. And even once I started uh, my oxygen, I, I was probably there for about 10 to 15 minutes um, trying to, you know, recover, kind of get my head back, my balance, equilibrium, all of these things um, to safely move and, and to start climbing. And, you know, like I mentioned before, I'm, I've never been uh, one of those individuals that has like summit fever and, you know, no matter what, I'm going to do this, you know, especially with my job and, and the way we try to teach our students, um, that was never a thing for me. Um, so Lockbow was there with me. And then our lead guy, David, he was behind me and I, and David and I, he's, very experienced mountain guide. Uh, this was his sixth summit of Everest. You know, he, he's been on that mountain, I think eight or nine times, very experienced and very, very good at what he does. And uh, I told him, I was like, hey, and, and I'll just be frank with you. I was like, hey man, I don't give a shit about the summit. You watch me. If my foot placements are off, if my rope work is off, if I look fucked up at all, you tell me, I'll turn around and go down. He's like, okay. And, and he stayed, he stayed behind me, you know, as, as we went up from there and, you know, after we started climbing, <laughs> we climbed for about another, I don't know, 15 minutes and we're on top of the South summit. Mm. And then I look across the summit ridge and there's the proper summit. So I, I had no idea, you know, really how, how high I was at that point, but there's a, a crossing the summit ridge it's a quite technical section, um, especially now there's a lot, a lot of rock um, with sheer drop-offs, you know, 11,000 feet either side, uh, quite technical. Um, so the easy bit of climbing wasn't over, you know, or, or the hard bit of climbing wasn't over by any means. Um, but we worked through and then we ended up getting to the summit at uh, 6.30 in the morning. So right at 12 hours from wow. Camp 4. Okay. Okay. And I guess I want to ask, and this is a crude question that may not have mattered at all. You pissed and shit yourself. You're wearing the big down suit. Like, what is that like standing on Mount Everest, having soiled yourself? Is that even a thought in your mind at that point? Or... I, I, forgive me. I've never been up yeah. above 14,000 feet. What is, what, what was that like? No, it's, it's a really good man. And honestly, it's something I've been dealing with and trying to process since I've been home. Honestly, I, <laughs> you know, when I was on the summit, I, the only thing that was running through my head was that I'd failed. I had failed my attempt. I had put uh. in that much work, that much dedication. And I had come you know relative so close 500 vertical feet from achieving this this goal of mine and then yeah i'm i'm on the summit i have shit down the back of my down suit i just failed my attempt like i think i had you know one or two pictures taken of me and and that was it i was ready to go in you know five or ten minutes i'm like all right now i i I have to get back down you know i knew how how much was below me and I, i was just focused on you know, getting off the mountain safely and kind of getting back down, but there, it definitely wasn't a, you know, a a super high stoke or glorious kind of summit. Yay. I was just like, Nope. Like, yeah, I'm here, but I'm ready to go down. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I guess that's 
probably somewhat common too, because most of the accidents that happen in, in the big mountain world are, are usually on the descent and just climbing some of the more technical 14,000 foot peaks here in Colorado, I'll get to the top and I'm freaking nervous. I'm like, okay, I'm only halfway there. You know, I still have to down climb this thing or somehow get down. So, um, I understand almost being in a hurry and it's like the journey's not over. The journey's only halfway done at this point. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, just again, kind of some context there with that, you know, I started that morning three o'clock in the morning from camp three, got up to camp four at 10 and I left at six 30. So what are you looking at? 15 and a half hours there. And right. then it was 12 hours to the summit. That day didn't end for me until I got all the way back down to camp two. And it turned into a 40 hour day, Whoa. you know, and, and a lot of people, you know, because like people are understanding it, and they say that quite often, they understand the statistics like, yeah, most accidents have it coming down. You're only halfway there. You know, I would argue the summit isn't halfway, you know, like things happen coming down, you know, especially there. Uh, on that climb because most of the climbers start at camp four, but to get to a safe place to really to sleep and recover and like a decent amount of oxygen, they have to move past camp four, past camp three, all the way back down to camp two. And why do you have to go back down to camp two? Why can't like, is camp three still considered a, a dangerous spot to stop and rest? Camp three is doable. Camp three, you can sleep, um, and you can sleep without oxygen if you've acclimatized and you have the physiology to do it, but you're not going to, you're not going to recover. And because of the, the risk to uh, cold weather injuries on that summit push, hypothermia, frostbite, extreme exhaustion, um, camp three is still, you know, it's very exposed. It's on the middle of the Lotse face, you know, with 5,000 feet of exposure below you on a 50 to 60 degree snow slope that avalanches and has been the site of multiple deaths you know coming down the lote vase it's it's not a a place you really want to stay at uh if you don't have to so right. the goal is to get down to to camp two and then um and actually i actually i would even argue you probably because all of the climbers are on supplemental oxygen they wouldn't be able to sleep at uh, camp three without oxygen oh, because their body has now lost that adaptation uh, process. They're used, it's used to the oxygen. So if you pull that away, you're going to create a very high risk uh, for uh, altitude wow. injury. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a big day and we, you know, that's where, you know, um, we did have, have incidents was on the, the descent, you know, so when I came down, I got back down to uh, camp four and weather was now rolling in high winds. It was snowing. It was a whiteout, and it was just, you had to get off, off of the mountain. And I had run out of oxygen. Mm. Uh, so I get down to camp four and I'm feeling, I'm feeling fine. And this is where, you know, I, you know, it's a learning experience for me, but I made a, uh, incorrect decision poor decision um because we had to move so quickly from camp four to get down the mountain um i didn't 
use supplemental oxygen. And in my mind, uh, one, whether we had to move, but also in my mind, I knew that I had been to camp four multiple times. I had just sat here for eight hours. I was totally fine. I, you know, all of these things. What I did not think about was I had just spent eight hours on supplemental oxygen. So again, that adaptation, the, uh, you know, increase in red blood cells, everything I gained from my rotations, I, I, I lost a good bit of it by using supplemental oxygen. And I didn't notice it until I started moving down from camp four. And I noticed my, my equilibrium was a bit off. My balance was off. I was having to focus and be very, very diligent with every foot plate, with everything I was doing. And, you know, as soon as I recognized that in like the first probably 15 minutes of the descent, I was like, yeah, I just fucked up. Mm. I have to, I have to move slow. I cannot fuck this up. I have mm. to be very, very diligent with everything I do to get off this mountain. And it just took it slow and was obviously able to come down. And then sure enough for me, once I got back down to around or just above camp three, so 23, 24,000 feet, I, it was a game changer for me. My head opened up, cleared up. I felt much better. I was able to make decisions. I was very tired. You know, I was pretty worked for sure. Um, but it was, that was the first like, okay, cool. My body's going back to normal now. Um, so we, we get down to three, we get back down to camp two at after you know, seven, seven thirty that night. And then we find out, uh, one of the climbers who had gotten turned around because he was moving too slow, uh, ended up basically just falling into his tent at camp four and was too exhausted. And he, he couldn't move. He wouldn't leave the tent. So now, um, himself, uh, David guide lead guide and two Sherpa had to spend a unplanned additional night at camp four to really rescue and take care of this, this climber. And, wow. you know, I mentioned the weather was coming in that night. It shredded tents. It ripped tents off of the South call, you know, threw them into Tibet. Uh, David, you know, he was holding the walls of their tent. So it wouldn't blow away. So it wouldn't get ripped and shredded. And he really saved that climber that night. Um, and another climber uh, made it off, off of the mountain, off the summit, but he uh, had gotten frostbite on three of his fingers. So he ended up uh, staying at camp three uh, because he was quite exhausted as well. So I ended up, when I got to camp two, the plan is get to camp two, sleep, recover, and then you go straight down to base camp, get off the mountain. Um, and I ended up staying an extra day at camp two until we got both of them, you know, everybody down to us. Yeah. Uh, we started treating for frostbite hands and feet. Uh, then the other climber, extreme exhaustion, doing everything we could with him on oxygen, getting, you know, nutrients and, and liquids into him. And then we ended up doing a, a helicopter rescue. Uh, for him that wow. following day. And then I went down with uh, the other climbers. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
I realize that you're, or at least I'm guessing, you're like a type A personality. Like you set a goal and you get it done. Um, talk to me about the the goal of no oxygen and then using the supplemental oxygen and the feeling of, I mean, I understand your feeling of failure. Like you didn't, you didn't do the thing you set out to do, but yet there's still pictures of you on top of the summit to us who don't really understand it. It's like, dude, no, you did it. Like, I don't quite get it. Um, when I talked to you on the phone a couple of weeks ago, I just, the only thing I could think in my mind is I was just like liking, likening it to someone going out and trying to set a course record at hard rock or Leadville or something. And I'm going to be the fastest to ever do this. And they don't set the fastest known time, but they still win the race. It's like, dude, you still did it, man. So like, how have you reckoned with that in your head over the last few weeks, or is that something you have been able to come to terms with? Do you still feel like it's a, a failure or like, how are you doing with that? Yeah, it's, it, it's been a challenge for sure. Um, and yeah, definitely for, for the first, especially you know, three weeks being home, you know, anytime I, you know, I, you have dreams about it. You can't really get it out of your head. It's pretty, really? pretty prominent thing in, in your mind, just that the whole experience, right? Like, and, and I think about it just that, you know, I failed because I set a personal goal for myself and, you know, I had it in my mind, you know, and I, I put it out there like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this thing. And, and, you know, and I came up short and, uh, so it was it's definitely been a, a challenge and, and difficult um, to kind of deal with it. And, and, and you are right. Yeah, I'm, I am a very type A uh, individual. I, I know, you know, Michelle, she'll, she'll talk about that at length uh, if you let her. But I, you know, I think I, I, I put a lot of, uh, you know, I'm pretty hard. I am, I'm hard on myself. Like no one, no, no one will ever be as hard on you know, on me as I am on me. And, and I set goals for myself and, you know, and I'll work and I'll, I'll do everything in, you know, my power to, to achieve those goals, you know, because if, if, you know, just the way I was raised, if you say you're going to do something, you do it, you know, and, and I've tried to kind of hold myself to that. What I only started, you know, and, and again, because it doesn't make sense. Right. And, and I talked to, you know, Michelle, family, friends, you know, everybody I talked to, it's like, dude, you summited, like, mm-hmm huge right like okay success and and so i especially having conversations with michelle i you know and i told her i was like i don't understand i don't know why like in my mind i can't you know view that you know as as a success i guess and it's just that that very simple i said i was going to do something and didn't do it but then like you step back and look at the really the big picture of this entire expedition and the amount of time and days I've put on that mountain and the things that we did um and then to the last 500 feet you know have this have this happen um I think one thing that made it hard was that I'm quite confident because of the way I was feeling um that if I would have controlled my my stress and my mind a little better and stayed more to focusing on my climbing and my pacing, what I needed to do. I, I wasn't having any issues at that point. And, and I, you know, I, 
pretty confident that I could have kept going, you know, had I not messed that up. So that that's been heavy on me because I can go back and look at like, yeah, I made this mistake and Mm -hmm. there's consequences, you know, and, and that's what happened. But what I'm trying to kind of process now, I was thinking about this earlier today, just, you know, obviously knowing we're going to have this conversation, you know, like I've, I failed at a lot of things. um, And in, in the immediate, it's a failure you know you go into depression you get hard on yourself and it's like the biggest thing but then as time goes on you start realizing how big the entire process was and then you start learning from it. you start taking from it you start you know kind of adapting and improving yourself for future endeavors you know moab was a great example you know that first year that dnf that hit me really hard Mm -hmm. and i came into that second year in a totally different place um, and was able to get it done. So I was kind of thinking of this event along those lines today. Um, and it's like, yeah, I went up, you know, I got punched right in the face, but I was still able to pull things together. You know, yeah, I went on supplemental oxygen, but I was able to be safe, still made, you know, good decisions and was able to safely get up and get back down the mountain and, you know, do the best I could to try to help others as well. Right. You know, not everything goes perfect or as planned. Um, and, you know, I just did what I had to do and, and still got there. So I think it'll, I maybe just need a little bit more time to really, you know, continue to process mm-hmm. uh, this event, but yeah, it's, it's a learning experience for sure. Yeah. I mean, from my point of view, it's like, yeah, you still did it, man. And, and it's like, yeah, I climbed Everest, but I had to put gloves on at the top because it was really cold up there. You know, it's almost like it just seems so arbitrary, but I understand it's a bigger deal to you. And I'm just wondering, like, with your type A personality, are you thinking I have to go back and do this again? Or like, like, or have you crossed that bridge yet? Or what are you thinking? No, um, it, I mean, if you say no, it's perfectly acceptable. Yeah, I mean, geez, it, you went and you know, did I, the thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I've learned, uh, I've, <laughs> I've learned well enough now, like never say never, but sure. because this being what it is and it's so big and there's so much that goes into it. Um, you know, not to mention, you know, what I put Michelle and my, my family through, you know, while, while I was gone during this trip, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if I would go back and I definitely, Good. I, I definitely could not justify, you know, paying to go back again. Right. Right. Um, but more importantly than that, um, one, like, I, I think it probably came pretty close on this trip and, you know, like having Michelle, here and you know supporting me and my family supporting me and always being there for me like you do enough things and you just you're constantly chasing the next thing Mm -hmm. and and i see this a lot me and my buddies talk about this a lot the military especially in our our line of work always chasing the next thing and trying to always you know do something better get to the next level or the next deployment you're just you're chasing that dragon Mm -hmm. eventually you're gonna find it and you know, as I've gotten older and really, I hope I've gotten better, but like appreciating my family and loved ones, you know, and realizing how, you know, really selfish 
um, it is doing what I do. I don't think it's worth putting them through that. Um, and then I've never been a, a check the block kind of a guy, um, you know, just to go do something, just say, Oh, yep, I did it. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I'm not big on like accolades and post accolades and posting things and stuff like that. And for me to go back and the thought of taking all of that risk again, and, you know, not just with extreme high altitude, but the weather, you know, we, like I said, we had, I had a very close call with an avalanche, I had a close call with Serac Falls, had a close call um, on a snow bridge and a crevasse. There were multiple times through this expedition to where it was a very real possibility of getting hurt or worse. And you spend so much time um, on that mountain, like, is it really worth it? You know, yeah. and and I, I I don't know if it would be. And if anything ever came up to where that possibility may come around before I did anything, I would have to have a conversation with Michelle. And if she said no, or she wasn't comfortable with it, and it's like, nope, that's, that's it. Yeah. So, okay. Well, I'm glad you answered that way. And and like, now I know that you're at least halfway human. So (laughs) good, man. Good. How has, um, reintegration back into society, been um, coming back home, you were gone for, you were up in the mountain for six weeks. I'm guessing you were gone for a couple months, like um, back to family and friends, back to work. Has it been? Yeah. How has it been? I'm just picturing coming back from a race and I did the thing and now I'm depressed because the thing is over with and I don't have anything to look forward to. Like, what's it been like for you? Yeah, no, you know, coming home, obviously, you know, seeing family, friends, all my buddies at work. Yeah, you know, it's, it's great. You know, I, I am really happy and really appreciate the fact that I, you know, came back home. Uh, and, and so that kind of, that's also given me different perspective um, as well. Just, you know, how much you appreciate, you know, family, loved ones, friends. And, uh, but, you know, when I got back home, I was like, yeah, you know, I feel a little tired, but like not too bad, a little bit of headache, maybe a little like jet lag or something. But I really kind of thought I was like, meh, fine. And it wasn't until I actually got back to the house. And I think it was the first time I was actually able just to turn my brain off and totally decompress and attempt to relax. And my body shut down for like two days. I was done. I wasn't going anywhere, just exhausted, sleeping. And uh, I ended up uh, for the first three weeks being home, having really bad headaches. And, you know, I've never, you know, I've had concussions and, and stuff before. And so you have some, you know, headaches, maybe a little vertigo or stuff after. But then, yeah, it's like after a day or so, it kind of goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was having really bad headaches and kind of got to the point to where uh I, I couldn't drive I had vertigo I was losing my balance um literally couldn't get off the couch and uh it, for I, th- I think it went on about three days where it was pretty bad and um I was incapacitated couldn't go into work nothing and you know finally Michelle she yeah, she's so incredible. She called me out. You know, we we're having dinner one night. She's like, she looks at me. She's like, Hey, you're fucked up. Like my speech was off. My, 
memory recall was off. Like she could just tell like something really? was wrong with you. Yeah. And she ended up taking me into the ER, uh, the next day and did a CT scan and, uh, I didn't have a stroke, so that's cool. Um, everything was fine there, but I had some uh, brain swelling mm. from my uh, cerebral edema from that uh, exposure. And there's really not much can do other than, you know, they prescribed me with, uh, you know, like different medications, stuff for headaches and, mm. you know, acetaminophen, tactile and all that kind of thing. But really, you know, and they actually in the ER and the docs I've seen since, <laughs> they apologized to me. He's like, hey, we're really sorry, man, but we don't see this. Like, we've never dealt with, you know, extreme high altitude, you know, right. kind of what's going on. And really, the only thing I could get was just relax and, you know, recover as much as you can, take it easy. Eventually, like, swelling go down and headaches will subside. And, you know, fortunately, this last, like, the last six days, seven days, I've been, I've been feeling much better okay you know finally started training again getting out on the trails moving in the Good. mountains and Good. and just kind of feeling back to to normal because it was that was super frustrating because it's like it's like damn it like not only did i fail at my attempt without o's but then you know i get back home and it's still screwing with me you know messing with my head and it's mm -hmm. like you know and i was you know i talked about trying you know doing the best i could with making good decisions and it just kept going through the back of my mind like like fuck man i you know i i hope i didn't push it too far to give me you know something a serious long-term affecting um injury right uh which luckily like it looks like i didn't but um you know once swelling goes down like i said i'm feeling better now and yeah finally getting back to training and kind of more of a level headspace well, that's good to hear. Is that common with people who are out there for a long amount of time, who summit Everest, who, who attempt without oxygen? Have you ever heard of anything like this before? No, I haven't. And, and honestly, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I've talked to, excuse me, kept in contact with a few of the other, you know, buddies on the expedition. And, you know, they, they've been good, you know, they're tired when they got home, but they were able to get back into into training and i definitely you know i've i've never talked to anybody else who went through the same exact um scenario that i did you know i, I think it'd be quite hard to find somebody who has um but you know i don't i i don't know sure. um like it, it just kind of i think it made me realize a little bit more kind of how far out there that that attempt was and you know like yeah maybe i did push my my body uh a good bit and you know it's just still trying to to recover from it you know so. yeah yeah well i'm glad you're feeling better dude um yeah, and thank you just uh an incredible story man i mean i have loved every minute of this and i'm just sitting here on the edge of my seat like i i loved it all man and i've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time um is there anything we missed in the story do you think we covered it all or I just want to make sure we capture everything. Yeah. And I mean, it, it is hard. It, yeah. And it's hard to cover, right? Like, you know, in a couple hour conversation, you know, six weeks or two months, but right. yeah, I mean, that pretty much sums it up. Went out there, hung out on the mountain for a few weeks and 
came back home. <laughs> <laughs> Come uh, on, man. You make it sound so easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. Um, how has uh, your family reacted? How has Michelle reacted? I mean, I've had Michelle on the podcast and that we had a great conversation while you were away. But, um, you know, I'm sure everyone missed you and everyone is glad you're still alive. But, um, yeah, what's what's it been like? Yeah, no, you know, my, like I said, my Michelle family, friends, everyone's incredibly supportive, um, especially while I was gone. I can't, you know, believe the amount of, of work and, and effort that my, you know, family put into, you know, taking care of things and doing things for me while I was gone. Um, and then coming home. Yeah. You know, everyone obviously very excited, you know, um, you know, happy that I summited for sure. Proud that I summited, but I think more importantly, just, you know, happy I made it back home kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, friends gracing them and, you know, I'll tell you, man, like I definitely have to say, like, you know, I talked about early on, you know, may not have been able to do this if, you know, so many people, um, didn't just donate out of their pockets to help fund this trip, but it, it really blew my mind while I was gone, the amount of support um, that I got from, from people, you know, not only social media, but, you know, I had my, my Garmin inReach link, you know, up. And so I would just get texts from people I didn't know, or people I hadn't seen in 20 years, you know, my hometown elementary school, they did this whole, you know, presentation on, you know, my attempt, they did pamphlets, the kids made signs, summit signs for me, they made a huge banner for me, you know, coming home and like, you know, I, you know, I've been back home, you know, my home, my hometown in, you know, 20 years, you know, like since I left school and just to still see that amount of, you know, just kind of, you know, pride and just small town, country town, like supporting each other like it was that hit me that was pretty heavy and it was it really took me back to see that much love and support kind of come from people Mm -hmm. um and it wasn't even you know beyond just the hey good luck we hope you summit but i was getting you know the same type of text like hey how are you doing are you okay get back safely like real you know uh real communication like really kind of looking out and it was it was pretty neat to see man it was pretty cool yeah yeah do you see any more big mountain projects in your future? Or, I mean, I know that you're also an ultra runner. Like, do you have a preference? Would you rather run long distances or climb the biggest mountains in the world? Or, you know, I mean, you just climbed yeah, the biggest mountain in the world. And I hate to ask what's next, but like, how do you top that? What is next? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I guess like right now, the only thing I have on the calendar, uh, I have a, you know, San Gray 200 miler in mm-hmm. September. Um, so I'm going to do that for sure. And then right now really just kind of working back into it. Um, I definitely need to get back into running 14ers, get back up to, you know, altitude here. Um, I need to finish out these 14ers. Um, I, I do really enjoy uh, big mountain climbing. I enjoyed high altitude, high elevation. Um, my, you know, I, I learned that my body does perform quite well um, there. But one thing that I have to be very cognizant of now is 
because I have now had a high altitude injury with the cerebral edema. Uh, that is a very real injury. And there have been uh, multiple climbers who have had haste and then went back in later years going to extreme high altitude and, and ended up dying uh, from really? that just because your body, you know, whether it's a, you know, an altitude injury or like say a cold weather injury, frostbite, hypothermia, things like that. Um, same thing with extreme heat, um, like heat exhaustion, heat stroke, things like that. If it happens to your body, you become more prone and it's more likely to happen again in the future. Mm. Um, and, you know, one of the, the thing, you know, with cerebral edema, um, you can feel uh, altitude mountain sickness coming on, you know, you get a headache and then maybe, you know, nausea, or vomiting, stuff like that. And it's easy to, to kind of return and egress from. Um, but the thing that kind of caught me off guard with my haste with my cerebral edema is how fast it came on. Because had I felt the onset kind of building up to that, you know, before I blacked out, I, you know, I, I could have adjusted. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it happened so quick, you know, because like through that whole through that whole time, I wasn't even, you know, like there's a dexamethasone, there's diamox, these uh, altitude sickness medications that, that people take to help them adjust to high altitude. I didn't take anything. I didn't need it. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't have headaches. I didn't experience any of these these side effects. I was fine. I slept great. Um, but it came on so quick. Uh, I think it's it, it's something that I have to be very smart with and sure. and how how i uh kind of move forward in the future there are definitely other uh mountains i would like to climb but for right now i think it's safe to say probably take some breaths and hang out at home and enjoy being with michelle and let her really kind of catch her breath uh before sure. i start throwing out something else wazoo <laughs> yeah um how old did you say you are jason did you say you're almost 40 yeah, I actually turned 39 on the mountain. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a happy birthday. Um, do, yeah. you, do you think in terms of age, like I'll get to a certain age and I'm going to have to slow down? Do you think in the future or are you still pretty present and moving forward? Or what does that look like for you? I, I don't see myself ever getting, you know, to an age or like retirement where it's like, ah, okay, I'm just going to chill. For me, you know, one of my biggest fears is ever becoming complacent or stagnant right? or just uncomfortable with where I'm at. And that's not to say that I'm unhappy with where I'm at. That's just saying that I found um, for me mentally, you know, and as a individual as as a team guy you know as a husband brother son whatever like i am better in all of those areas if i'm constantly trying to pursue something or better myself improve myself uh you know i, I kind of especially with what i do you know one of the most dangerous things that an individual can do is is feel comfortable like oh, i've been mountaineering for three years i've got it i'm good Mm -hmm. oh, I've been doing the military thing, a couple trips. Eh, I've got it. I don't need to train. I don't need to, to work. I don't need to push myself anymore and become complacent. Um, and it becomes pretty dangerous. Um, right. 
and for me i just you know i i find happiness from that and i know like you know for example if if say i'm trying to prepare or i'm pursuing say a big race or a big event i notice it also um raises my overall positivity and my outlook on life and i not only do i want to better myself for this event but i want to be a better husband i want to be a better soldier or a better instructor like i just want to be better so i don't know i guess i just kind of look at that like probably just keep pushing this thing until the wheels fall off <laughs> i love it man i love it um one of the final questions this one came from facebook is uh I have a friend, his name is Scott, and I don't know how old Scott is. I would guess he's probably mid to late 40s, early 50s, but he said that he's had a dream of climbing Everest since he was in his 20s, and, you know, life moves fast, and you're working every day, and this guy's really active, and he's got a lot of, trust me, the guy's a badass. He's got a lot of things he's he's doing, and, and he's moving forward, but he asks, like, as a late 40, 50 year old man, like, how do you make this dream possible? Like, it almost just seems like a pipe dream to him. Like, how did, how does he make it happen? Yeah. And you know, first and foremost, if it's something that, that he wants and he's willing to commit to and devote himself to, he can absolutely do it and get it done. Like there's, there's no doubt. Um, you know, our lead guide, David, uh, He's, I want to say he's early fifties. Um, you know, we had multiple climbers that were mid fifties, mm-hmm. um, on our expedition, like age, you know, it, you know, it's very similar, like in that sense to the ultra community, Yeah, you know, like I've definitely learned, you know, um, as I've gotten older, you, you learn so much more about yourself, your body, you know, mental toughness comes in and learning experiences getting beat down and building yourself back up but then even just for the the long duration endurance aerobic focus stuff like a lot of people come into their prime and perform very very well you know well into their 40s 50s you know Mm -hmm. like so i i don't really look at age necessarily like is that much of a hindrance, you know, mm-hmm. for, for something like that, that, you know, the biggest things are obviously the, you know, definitely training and experience in the mountains being technically safe and proficient. And then you have the logistical piece, you know, how, you know, funding and all of that stuff. But I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think if you want to, if you want to do something, if you commit and you just put everything into it and you have to put yourself out there, like, you have to know like, yeah, this is pretty out there and there may be a chance I fail or maybe there, I can't get this off the ground or can't fund it. But if you have something you're passionate about and you want to do it, fucking get after it and go get it done. Like mm-hmm. you can do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just listening to you say that made me think of just one more thing. So like while you were on the summit and you blacked out and you had to take supplemental oxygen, was there ever doubt in your mind? Did you ever think I may not summit today? What, or throughout the entire project, was there ever doubt in your mind? There's definitely, at that specific uh, point in time, there, there wasn't. I, I knew I could summit, but I knew it, it wasn't top priority to me. Like I, I would have been totally fine if, 
you know, David or somebody would have told me, Hey, like you're unsafe or this or that, or I would have, I recognize like, I just can't safely negotiate this stuff. I would have been absolutely fine turning around, coming back down. Mm. Um, now where I will say there was absolutely, uh, questions in my mind, um, all the way building up to it, you know, a, a attempting without oxygen on, on whether I could do that or not, you know, cause people, people died this year on the mountain. There's, you know, an individual who died of extreme exhaustion and then had, I don't know if it was an aneurysm. They had something um, cerebral happen at camp one uh, mm. before they went on oxygen. And, wow. uh, you know, and then I mentioned the uh, avalanches and strikes and all these, these other things. And there's so, so many unknowns, mm-hmm. so much risk that goes into that. Um, yeah, I, I had no idea. And it was quite intimidating. Those five days after my second rotation, when I was sitting at base camp, you know, trying to recover before my summit bid, it was a constant battle with me every day. Because, of course, you know, I'm listening to audiobooks, so I'm listening to Into Thin Air, you know, for the 17th time by John Krakauer, Krakauer yeah. you know, right? And, and I'm listening to, you know, and I have other books and stuff I'm listening to, but I'm just constantly putting myself through this, trying to completely envelop and, and surround everything into what I'm attempting to do. Because um, that's kind of, you know, for me, it's not just, you know, the physical training and nutrition hydration it's my psychological um perspective my state of mind like anything i go after the for me um i found that i have to do a 100 percent whole encompassing approach to whatever my objective is Mm -hmm. and become a lifestyle goal instead of a short-term check the block thing it's like no everything in my life revolves around this i'm going to read i'm going to learn i'm going to you know, whatever I can to wrap my head around this. And for those five days, you know, it was a constant, you know, it, it was a psychological battle because I knew what could happen. I knew what could go wrong, mm-hmm. you know? And then, like I said, that uh, the day of camp four, when my climbing partner decided to go on oxygen there, and then I was going to kind of push up by myself with lockup, that was a, I had to put myself into a pretty, not a, dark mind state but a pretty aggressive like yeah it thinks you get pretty real but mm-hmm. like we're kind of getting get into it here and yeah it's definitely a lot of question a lot of unknowns and uncertainty for sure yeah yeah well you touched on the mental aspect of it there which is obviously hugely i'm just vastly important for for a project like this and i just think of some of the harder things i've done in my life and the mental just thought and preparation that I put into these things beforehand. And tell me if it's the same with you as it is with me, but like, I am picturing every single instance and every single outcome and how it's going to, uh, how, how the ripple effect is going to affect the rest of my life. I I'm picturing not only um, accomplishing this goal, but I'm, I'm picturing failing this goal and how, and how, what that's going to look like and just every outcome and every possibility. If a storm rolls in, if I have frostbite, if, you know, my Sherpa gets injured and I'm carrying him down the mountain, like I'm literally, like I would be picturing everything. Is that kind of how it is in your mind? 
Yeah, it, it absolutely is, you know, especially like with the, the military uh, background, you know, planning is so critically important for us. And so contingencies, you know, we will sit there for days and weeks and just break down, you know, for as much as we can brainstorm anything and everything that could possibly go wrong, it's going to go wrong. How are we going to mitigate that risk? How are we going to adapt to it? And how are you going to continue mission? Mm -hmm. And for me on this, yeah, that's exactly what it was. Like everything has to be so systematic and thought through and dialed and prepared for, you know, like, like I said, the, the gloves and the socks things, I can't tell you, you know, I probably took, you know, eight or 10 different pairs of gloves with me on this expedition because I knew the different temperatures, the different types of climbing, you know, snow, weather, wind coming in, um, high altitude, you know, those socks, those socks are, <laughs> Michelle laughs at me because they're really expensive. Um, but I, you know, I had to try them out on the mountain. And so like, yeah, I actually, they're battery operated socks, right? Well, even lithium batteries at high altitude and extreme cold, they die. So this, these pair of socks are supposed to last for 12 hours. Well, I tested them out from camp three to camp four, they lasted me four hours. So at first I told myself, nope, not taking them on my summit bit. And then what I ended up doing was figuring out a way to keep the batteries heated and warm with uh, chemical hand warmers. And then I purposely layered my, uh, my pants uh, to where I could both unzip pants and get to the batteries to change them and replace them but they were covered and protected, keeping and storing this heat. And then I purposely left camp four without turning the socks on because I wanted to extend that battery life. And I was systematic. It's like, okay, my toes are cold. My toes are numb. Okay, now back to the arch of my foot is numb. Everything was numb. Cool. Now I'm going to turn the batteries on. Mm. They were, but it's like, these things you just you think through and you have to plan and you have to have the foresight. Um, and, and I think, you know, we go back to the experience in, in, in mountaineering and mountain climbing and that, that mountain sense that I mentioned earlier, that foresight has to come from experience. Totally. That's, that's what makes me, you know, a bit apprehensive with people kind of attempting that mountain without having that um, experiences because they don't have, you know, maybe some of that foresight, you know, and obviously like, you know, this is my, this was my first attempt at a big mountain. So I, I don't have all the foresight, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I was quite fortunate with my job now and, and my background to be able to mitigate, you know, a, a lot of the risk or as much as I could see anyway. Um, and then communication, is so huge on an expedition like that. You know, you have 15 other people with you, plus two guides, plus your Sherpa, you know, being able to talk to people and allow them to, to brainstorm and, you know, this open dialogue uh, to where you're all just this team environment trying to get everybody safely up and down the mountain. Um, that that helped a lot. It was, it was critical, yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad you shared that part about the socks, dude. That is awesome. And I'm guessing yeah. that that your your attention to detail wasn't just in the socks i'm sure that was to every yeah. single piece of gear that you're carrying and um yeah just like you're, you're planning 
you're hoping for no surprises. Everything is going through your head in the weeks and months leading up to this thing so that when you get out there and you have frostbite and you just lost a finger and you're still going to go for this thing because we ain't dead yet. You know, if I have to crawl to the top of this thing, we're going to keep going. And, uh, that's why I, I don't know, man. I love it. I loved every second of this dude. It was, it was, it was a great conversation. Oh, thank you, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me on again. Uh, of course. I knew it'd be a great conversation. Awesome, dude. I can't wait to link up, uh, get some trail mileage in together. Yes, sir. And I think we, we talked earlier or uh, before, are you going to be at Sangre? I'm going to be at Sangre. I'm still not sure if I'm going to be running because I've had a running injury for going on a year now. And I just had some other health issues and just spent the night in the hospital recently too. So it's a little bit up in the air right now, but, uh, I'm still training. I'm on my bike almost every day and I'm just starting to get out for some hikes and some little runs. So, but even if I'm not running, I'm definitely going to be there hundred percent. Nice. Yeah, man. Heck yeah. Well, I uh, hope it's before that, but definitely look forward to, to meeting you and, and actually hanging out together. Yeah, dude, a hundred percent. And one more quick last question. Um, Green Beret Racing. It, I, I know that your project is already done, but is there still a way for people to donate to that or what, what's that like? Yeah, absolutely. And, and please do check it out. Uh, Instagram, you know, Green Beret Racing, uh, go to the website, homepage, greenberayracing.org. Uh, uh, but, you know, like I mentioned, while I was gone, you know, that we have, you know, roughly half a dozen new athletes now. Right. Um, they've got mountain bike races they're registering for, um, you know, races anywhere from, I think, like a 10K up to ultras. And so it's like finally getting to a place where we can start getting, you know, more guys involved into this and, and getting them out, getting them outside, you know, either in the mountains, running shooting archery we have guys in photography just anything that they're passionate about mm. uh they can get after but yeah like my you know this was just my trip this is by no means um the end of it i, I was really hoping this would kind of just be the kickoff and a start for it mm -hmm. um yeah just because it's it's a very different organization in that you know uh most of us are all still still active duty mm -hmm. and it's just an incredible opportunity to still be serving, still be on active duty and have this, this other community, this camaraderie that we have of taking care of each other and helping each other, you know, get out before, you know, guys get into dark places or they don't know where they're going to, you know, what they're going to do, where they're going to go. And we're just really trying to get ahead of that curve and it's working and it, it's awesome to see more and more, um, green berets come into the, the organization it's great and just to explain to people and correct me if i'm wrong here but I, um, green beret racing is supporting people with pts or with injuries and we're just helping them with whatever their passions are like you said if you want to get into photography we'll support that if you want to get into ultra running we're going to help support that is that kind of what they do yeah yeah definitely and you know post-traumatic stress um you know everybody's quite quite familiar with that but we've really especially and over the last i don't know few years the awareness around traumatic brain injury has 
increased, you know, significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, you know, with our community, you definitely have like, say, direct blast injuries, but we're, what's really happening, and, and I've even learned with myself, there's, you know, repetitive concussive events that happen, you know, we're firing shoulder fired, you know, rocket munitions. Every time you fire something, that blast is right by your head. You drop a mortar round, it's right by your head. We start doing CQB and, and shooting stuff in houses and buildings, and we're blowing doors, blowing breaches. That's right by your face. And you're, what they're finding is these repetitive blasts over time are absolutely causing, you know, traumatic brain injuries. You know, I, I, when I've talked to some folks uh, uh, with my stuff, you know, they asked me like, well, how many, t- have you ever been knocked, knocked unconscious? <laughs> like, are you kidding me, bro? Like, do you know how I grew up? Like, yeah, I've been knocked <laughs> unconscious. And they're like, well, you know, then military and stuff. I'm like, yeah, dude, I've, you know, and then how many times? Oh, okay. This many times have you had a concussion? Like, yeah. And, but it's becoming more and more prevalent and it's more, um, been widely talked about finally and kind of coming to the surface and 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 more importantly like guys are starting to be able to you know talk about like I mentioned you know earlier I never want someone to view me as the weak link so for the longest time like nope fine no issues like no matter what's going on like got a job to do and carry on um but you know after enough time uh you know, things start to surface and, you know, and what they're really, you know, things I'm learning now is a lot of the signs and symptoms of PTS and TBI present themselves quite similarly, Uh, you know, the same, you know, depression, lethargy, you know, constantly being tired and these different, um, you know, short temper, whatever, these uh, different symptoms, signs and symptoms. you know, and then there's also with us uh, operational stress, stress, which is right. the day to day, right? So, in now, like, you know, we're talking about things too that's not just, you know, solely related to Green Berets. You know, we talk about operational stress, even post traumatic stress, DBI, like, you know, law enforcement, first responders, medical personnel. You know, my cousin, he's a wildland firefighter for 20 years now. The stories and things he has done and lived through. You know, we actually had a great conversation right before I left for my uh, trip, and we're both dealing with a lot of the same mm-hmm. same situations. It's everywhere, but we're, you know, fortunately, very fortunately for me and the community I'm with, and what GBR is is trying to do, like finally making it okay for guys to like, hey, dude, let's go have a beer, let's mm-hmm. let's have a talk, like mm-hmm. what's going on, you know, and you're getting past that stigma, uh, you know, like kind of you really seemed to be there for me anyway um really through the earlier part of my career yeah which is huge man which is very important and i i can't get behind that anymore man i mean i I highly support that listen dude it's been an honor to have you on the show i really appreciate it thank you for sharing your story not only with me but thank you for sharing it here man I, i really appreciate it and um, you, of course you're welcome on the show anytime. And, uh, yeah, I can't wait to share some miles with you. And, um, yeah, like I said, just an honor to have you on, man. It was a pleasure listening to every second of this. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what we are doing at big things crewing, 
or you enjoy the podcast, please consider donating to us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash do big things is where you can drop a dollar in the hat, so to speak. I'd like to thank our loyal Patreon subscribers. Without you guys, this isn't possible. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'd like to thank our sponsors. First of all, Exoskin. Their running apparel keeps you comfortable in absolutely any condition. Say goodbye to chafing and blisters. Check them out. Exoskin.us. Use our discount code, capital BTC, for 15% off. I also want to tell you guys real quick about Bigger Than the Trail. Bigger Than the Trail is a 501c3 tax-exempt organization that is using trail running as a platform to advocate for mental health. If you've ever thought about getting therapy but aren't in the position where you can afford it or you don't have insurance, Bigger Than the Trail offers you free therapy for three months. Yes, you got it. I said it. You heard it right. I couldn't love what these guys are doing more. I signed up for it. It was quick. It was easy. Within 48 hours, I had a, a therapist that met all my pre-requirements. It was all matched up with me and met my personal criteria. And I met with her every week for, I don't know, a couple months. And, uh, you know, I, I, I met with her until I felt a little bit better. And, uh, you know, I'm trying this thing. You guys should try this thing. And, you know, we can all do it together. Look up Bigger Than the Trail. Sign up for the services, and let's do the small things in life that eventually lead us to doing the big things. Let them know we sent you. Also, we want to thank Alter Ego Running. They make premium performance hats. Everyone needs a good lid or two when you're out running on an epic adventure. Uh, These hats should be your go-to on everyday runs, epic adventures, and just cruising around town. Check out Alter Ego Running. Use our promo code, capital all caps, do big things, and that's for 20% off. Last but not least, this podcast is brought to you by Athletic Brewing, the finest non-alcoholic craft beer in the market. Check out athleticbrewing.com and use my discount code, McRobertsA20, all caps, for 20% off the finest non-alcoholic beer around. Enjoy the taste without the hangover. Remember, guys, life is short. Do big things, baby. Pedro, take us for a run.